Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to season three. On this week's episode, we got a couple articles to kick things off. First, from JCO Oncology Practice, evaluation of omics-based strategies for the management of advanced lung cancer. You won't want to miss this doozy of misinterpretation. Next, we go to the New England Journal of Medicine, the effect of advances in lung cancer treatment on population mortality. The authors must think we're not very smart because otherwise they wouldn't write a paper like this. Finally, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what happened when I went down the rabbit hole of a reference. You won't want to miss that discussion. Then, I'm joined via Zoom by Dr. Brandon Tarlow, and we're going to pick up where we left off on a breathtaking paper about PPI and COVID acquisition. Breathtaking data that Dr. Tarlow has looked at very closely, and he's got some key concerns. And our guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Eisenhower, professor of medicine at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. You may be familiar with the phrase Eisenhower et al., as in resist 1.1 guidelines. You won't want to miss this discussion of all things oncology. So stay tuned. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. First up, Salji and colleagues, evaluation of omics-based strategies for the management of lung cancer. This was a retrospective study performed at a single institution that looked at academic physicians who specialize in thoracic oncology. Well, that's what they did, and here's what they found. They found that among non-small cell lung cancer patients who got an omics, an NGS, broad genomic platform testing, and received targeted therapy, they both had a longer PFS and a longer OS than patients who did not receive targeted therapy. They write, The distinct improvement in PFS and OS due to omic-informed therapy may influence oncologists to consider TKIs as the preferred therapeutic option. Wow, bravo. You want to encourage oncologists to consider something that every oncologist on earth already considers. That is a spectacular piece of research. But we're going to talk about this paper a little bit. This is a paper like so many papers that the authors are either trying to intentionally mislead us. They don't understand the research themselves. There's some deep flaw here. This paper appeared in JCO Oncology Practice, should have appeared in the garbage can because it has no value whatsoever. We all know that if you take a lot of people with non-small cell lung cancer, and they are women, younger, Asian, non-smoker, and you sequence them, you're going to find mutations. If you sequence people who are older, smokers, men, you're going to find more RAS mutations if you find any mutations at all. RAS is a mutation that is undruggable. Finding an undruggable mutation is not very helpful. RAS is only helpful because often in cascade testing, it prevents the need for testing for other oncogenes. Now we have many FDA-approved therapeutic options for oncogenes. We have EGFR drugs, we have ALK drugs, we have ROS1 drugs, we have BRAF drugs, we have MET drugs, we have RET drugs, and we have TREK drugs. Although, if you see a patient with Trek 
fusion non-small cell lung cancer, you might want to send me a note because that's quite rare and I'd like to know if you found one. So we have these driver mutations in lung cancer and we test for them. And realistically, we only find more or less EGFR and ALK mutations, very rarely ROS1 mutations. In a couple of these settings, we have randomized controlled trial data showing a PFS benefit. In several of the other settings, we have uncontrolled studies showing a response rate that is slightly better than chemotherapy response rates in all comers. Is it better than chemotherapy response rates in those molecular subgroups? Well, we don't really know. We have a hint of a data signal from a paper by Drillin and colleagues on Pemetrexid and ROS1, where they had superb responses to Pemetrexid in the ROS1 cohort. And thus, the ROS1 drug crizotinib doesn't appear to be a whole heck of a lot better when I superimpose some PFS curves in lectures that I've given on this podcast. So we have a bunch of uncontrolled studies. We have a lot of true believers, of course, because it's easy to be a true believer when you're on the payroll for the company making the drug. But it's also easy to be a true believer when you have an exquisite response rate. Response, of course, is a measure of tumor shrinkage. It's not a measure of whether or not people live longer or live better. We have one more piece of data that's really interesting. We've got that foundation medicine paper that appeared in JAMA a couple years ago that one found very poor rates of testing for these driver mutations. Two, they found that in people who received any EGFR-directed therapy with an EGFR mutation versus those who received no EGFR-directed therapy, et cetera, for ALK, et cetera, for ROS1, et cetera, for all. So in other words, people who received any driver mutation therapy versus no driver mutation therapy among people who had a driver mutation, there was a survival benefit in this observational real-world flat iron data set. However, the survival benefit was good something on the order of like five to 10 months-ish, I think a seven months if I recall correctly, um, but it wasn't spectacular. It's not a 40, 50, 80, 90 month. It's not an imatinib survival benefit. It's a modest survival benefit. That's what we know about these drugs. They are oncogenes in lung cancer that rarely in a fraction of people are the driver mutation. When you drug them, you get a response. It is often always fleeting. It will always lead to oncogene resistance at some point and the progression of the disease. Many people come along and they say, say things like, these drugs are really miraculous. ALK patients now live five years. Well, that may be true in some selected clinical trial settings that they have that median survival. But you know what must be remembered is that the years of life lost is still catastrophic. These oncogene mutations occur in patients on average with younger age. Typically, we're talking something like 20, 25 life years that are lost from this disease with no treatment. And maybe with all of these cancer oncogene-directed therapies and not chemotherapy, but in a, the oncogene-directed therapies, maybe you claw back two years, three years, four years of median survival, but you're still leaving 18 years, 17 years, 20 years of life lost. It's still a horrible diagnosis to give somebody. So it's easy to take money from the company and cheerlead for these products. And then you can say, well, I'm a glass half full person, but you're not a glass half full. You're a glass that's 5% full and it's 95% empty. And you're talking about how it's the greatest drink of water you've ever had. That's the kind of people we have in this field. So there are some philosophical questions that are still real in non-small cell lung cancer, which is who should get the broad NGS panel and who should get tested sequentially? Is it reasonable? to test people for RAS or EGFR, ALK and RAS, 
and then to deploy the broader panel, maybe more selectively, maybe just in the people who you think have an oncogene addiction, younger non-smoker, that kind of phenotype, and not everybody, all comers. The truth is we don't know, and we have very poor ongoing studies that assess the efficacy of the routine application of broad NGS 300 gene panels, and we don't have ongoing attempts at remedy. Those are the two problems we face. The other sort of challenge we face here is that every time you send a broad gene panel, you might find an oncogene for which there's an approved drug. You might also find an oncogene for which there is no approved drug, but it is seductive. It is alluring to give a targeted drug that may have some preclinical rationale. And in those cases, you may actually be doing the patient a disservice and giving them a treatment that's inferior to chemotherapy. In fact, for most of these oncogene subgroups, we do not have head-to-head trials against chemotherapy, and we do not know if it's better or worse or when to give it. However, the field, the experts in the field, have no commitment to answering these questions because they already believe they know the answer. That is a staggering amount of hubris. Now comes along this paper, which is in a long line of papers that are destined to find what they find. The, uh, if you look at this paper, I encourage you to look at figure three. Figure three shows that patients who receive targeted therapy, the drugs for those targets I mentioned, have a better PFS, nine versus five months, and a better OS than those who receive non-targeted therapy. Let me give you these numbers to put it in perspective. Patients who received any targeted therapy, they have a median survival of 38 months. Patients who received no targeted therapy they had a median survival of 26 months. So in other words, you live two years with no targeted therapy. You live three years with a targeted therapy. Couple things here we're noting. One, they're living probably a little bit longer than average or than broader cohorts. And that's probably the referral bias of the City of Hope. The City of Hope is not taking anybody. It's not taking all comers. It has a referral bias preferentially for indolent biology is my guess. That's why both groups are living longer on average. Next. Let's just be frank. Let's say these two groups are actually comparable, which they're not. We'll talk about how they're not comparable. Well, let's say they're comparable, that this is the counterfactual. What this is actually saying is that all of these drugs, EGFR, ALK, ROS1, all of these drugs, they give you from two years to three years median survival. And it costs a few hundred thousand dollars. That is terrible. That's not good. That's so many years of life lost. That's not a game changer. That's not a miracle. That's not a revolution. That's not a cure. The median age of diagnosis in the targeted therapy group is 62. You're giving these people three years of life. Many of them are dying at an age prior to retirement age in this country. Prior to the age at which you can collect social security, they're dying. It's not a game changer. That's the best case scenario from these data. The absolute upper bound best case. You're giving them a year from two to three years. That's not great. But it's very likely that you're giving them less because the non-targeted therapy group, their median age at diagnosis is 68. Among the people, among the people who receive targeted therapy, 44% are Asian, 49% are white, 2% are black. Among the group that receives no targeted therapy, 73% are white, 17% are Asian, and 4% are black. The targeted therapy group is enriched for people who are Asian. In the targeted therapy group, 68% are never smokers. In the non-targeted therapy group, it's only 28%. In the targeted therapy group, nearly no one 
has more than 30 pack years of history, whereas the majority of people in the non-targeted therapy group have more than 30 pack years of history. In the targeted therapy group, the mutations that are most common are EGFR and ALK, and like 1% BRAF, 1% RET, 2% ROS1, 2% MET, and 3% ERB2. In the non-targeted therapy group, the most common mutation when there is a mutation is none, but the most common mutation they document is KRAS, 34%. This is not comparable groups. The group that's not getting targeted therapy, they're older. They're more likely to be white, less likely to be Asian. They're more likely to be smokers. When they are smokers, they smoke more and they're more likely to have RAS mutations. They have a different biology. What is a researcher thinking to think that these are comparable groups? It is a staggeringly arrogant act to produce this comparison and let people infer that the difference in survival between these two groups is attributable to the targeted drugs it's in part attributable to target drugs. It's in part attributable to the fact that the group that has targets is a very different group. They're six years younger. They're more likely to be Asian. They're more likely not to smoke. When they do smoke, they smoke less. They have EGFR and ALK mutations overwhelmingly, and they don't have RAS mutations, which is bad biology. There is a glut of papers like this that make these survival comparisons. They are all grievously flawed. At this point, I no longer believe that the authors are merely ignorant of the deficiencies of their research. If they were merely ignorant, I believe that's forgivable. They must want to advance their narrative so desperately that we've made progress from targeted therapy, that they are willing to generate research, in quotes, that is of such poor quality, it's not worthy of being published in any journal. It should be flatly rejected. This is absolutely garbage, just a totally useless comparison. The only thing that I think is telling is that the upper bound survival benefit of the targeted therapy drugs, it can't be more than 12 months. And that actually kind of fits with the foundation medicine data. All of these targeted drugs, it's a modest benefit as it's given in these settings. And that benefit, half of it, perhaps more, perhaps less, but perhaps more, is due to the selection bias of the patients in whom targets exist. And in fact, this paper makes it abundantly clear that if you test for EGFR and ALK, You've got most of the mutations. The yield for BRAF or at ROS1 is exceedingly low. It is likely the case that one cannot fault a community doctor not for testing for those strategies, despite the fact that many KOL experts claim that it is now the standard to test. If you do find a BRAF mutation, what randomized data exist that shows a BRAF inhibitor first is better than chemotherapy first? Oh, let me let me check my my little book of trials. Actually, I don't have a book. I just keep it in my mind. I, oh, oh, there's no such randomized trial. Because the people in this field have an allergy to randomized control trials. They don't like it. It's like a PPD test that gives them a big in duration, 10 millimeters. So this paper, a useless comparison of two groups that are not the same, in fact, as dissimilar as lung cancer patients can be, purporting to advance a claim that on its face is the silliest thing I've ever heard. I'm just going to read you their, quote, real-life implications, the sentence from that paper, quote, the distinct improvement in PFS and OS due to omic-informed therapy may influence oncologists to consider TKIs as the preferred therapeutic option. Well, I don't think there are many oncologists who, when they find the EGFR mutation, they give the chemotherapy. I think they are going to consider the preferred option. Um, you don't have to persuade them. That's been, that, that, that battle has been fought. They're persuaded. What you don't show is that broad NGS sequencing is worth it 
In fact, the data do probably suggest it's not worth it, EGFR now, because the majority of the, of the findings. What you also show is that these mutations are preferentially overwhelmingly found in younger non-smoker, lesser smoker, Asian, and female. I forgot to mention the target therapy group is 62% female, and the non-target therapy group is 48% female, which is more gender balanced. I don't know what to say. I don't know why people do these papers and I don't know why people publish these papers. They are um, just a waste of time. I mean, if you if you really want to crack on with the agenda um, that we have to sequence everybody and give everyone a $200,000 drug and that these drugs are miracles, even though everyone is still dying with 15 years of life lost, if you want to crack on with that narrative, you're really not going to have great progress in oncology. One of the things that would lead to progress would be if you didn't take money from the companies and you put pressure on the companies to lower the price, if you were honest about the limitations of the genome-driven strategy, which have only helped a paucity of people with cancer, and if you actually ran analyses that were committed to having proper comparator groups, in which case you could make real causal inferences about the benefit of the therapies instead of inflated estimates. Despite the fact that all those limitations exist, the median survival in your own cohort when you take older, smoker, RAS, white patients is 20-some months. And when you take younger, female, Asian, non-smoker patients with EGFR mutations who receive targeted therapy, it's 36 months. You give them 12 months. That has got to give you some pause about the benefit of oncogene drugging in this say You are likely making a very modest impact with these drugs. And it's important to be very clear about that because the glass isn't half full, my friend. It is mostly empty. It has a little bit of water in it. And if you really wanted to know how much water, you'd have to do a randomized control trial that's designed and suited to assess overall mortality. Instead, you give me this, which is a laughable excuse for research. So on that positive note, we'll turn to the next paper. The Effective Advances in Lung Cancer Treatment on Population Mortality. Well, the authors of this paper wanted to prove a point, that you don't always have to have financial conflicts of interest to generate an agenda-serving research project. You don't have to have it, and they, in fact, they probably don't because they work at the NIH, and there are strict draconian restrictions on consulting for the pharmaceutical industry. That said, these authors revisit something that's been revisited before, which is the decline in lung cancer mortality that was observed in the SEER data set and in an American Cancer Society analysis. I wrote about this in Nature in January. The title of my piece was, Our Best Weapons Against Cancer Are Not Magic Bullets. Um, it made the argument that the American Cancer Society statistics um, which purported to claim that treatment, specifically genome treatment, was the cause for the improvement in cancer mortality, could not possibly explain it by any sort of analysis of the actual numbers. Um, and, and here, they doubled down on it. So let's read. Population-level mortality from non-small cell lung cancer in the U.S. fell sharply from 2013 to 2016. After diagnosis improved substantially, our analysis suggests that a reduction in incidence along with treatment advances, particularly improvement in the use of targeted therapies, is likely to explain the reduction in mortality observed during this period. Well, these authors are... Uh, totally wrong. It's the silliest paper I've ever seen. So, I mean, what do I want to point to you that suggests it is silly? So the first thing is there is clearly a time trend, and I encourage you to look at this paper. Let's look at figure one. Figure one is a graph that shows the age-adjusted number of deaths per 100,000 people. So 
okay, they get a point because they're not using five-year survival or something that's absolutely a useless metric to look at. They're looking at age-adjusted death over time. And they have two different measures that they're looking at. One, death certificate mortality, and two, something they call incidence-based mortality. Um, both of these curves really roughly the same for the period of study interest, which is really 2006 to 2016, which is the last data they have. And when you look at this curve, with your eye from across the room, it is a straight line down. There is a gradual steady decline in lung cancer death over time. Likely the largest contributor to this decline in lung cancer mortality is in fact smoking cessation. It gives you less lung cancer. It gives you less lung cancer death. Just that simple. If you look at this graph from across the room, you would find that it is very difficult visually to say that there is much of a difference in the slope of the curve. From 2006 to 2009, it declines. From 2009 to 2012, it declines. From 12 to 14, it declines. From 14 to 16, it declines. If I had to say some part of this curve was slightly different, I would say 15 to 16 is slightly declining more than other parts. But then 2010 to 2011 looked a little bit steeper down. 29 to 2010 looked a little flatter. If I really look at this and I put a straight edge on it, I'm not entirely convinced there's any point in this curve where I am willing to say something different is going on. Why is that important? Because the entire premise of their analysis is that in 2013, the year we had the approval of EGFR in the frontline setting and ALK inhibitor in that year, the authors believe that that was a change where the trajectory of lung cancer death declines more substantially from 2013 to 2016 than it did in prior years. Honestly, I would I, you know, if nobody told you anything and they just showed you that curve, in fact, as perhaps as an experiment someday, I will remove all these things and ask people to draw where they think the inflection point of this curve is. I think if you ask a lot of people to draw it, they will, then nobody would ever pick 2013. Some people pick 2015. Um, I, don't just, I just don't think I even believe their premise that there is something different. When you spline a curve when it shouldn't be splined, it's very likely you'll find difference in slopes and different segments. It doesn't mean that there's anything different biologically going on. It could all be the same trend. You've just excessively splined a curve. Um, so that's one point to make. The next point to make is, you know, they keep acting as if EGFR-directed therapy was invented on 2013. It wasn't. Many of us know IPASS. Tony Mock study. We know the analysis of EGFR. Many of us had been giving EGFR in the years prior to that. It was a slow, steady uptake of EGFR therapy, and there was nothing magic that happened in 2013. So the idea that those drugs have contributed to outcomes um, in 2013 because they're approved in 2013 would be the opinion of somebody who doesn't understand how oncology was practiced. It Those drugs were used um, before 2013. They were used after 2013. And I don't know exactly the rates with which they're used. I would be curious to know that. These authors, of course, made no effort to find that out. So that's the first thing. One, is it even the case that there's a differential change in lung cancer death in the years in question? And the answer, in my opinion, is that that is not the case. I do not believe that they have made a substantive argument that there is anything different going on in those years, 2013 to 2016. As I said, I actually think 2015 and 16 are the different years, and I think that's probably due to the approval in 2014 of the PD-1 drugs. PD-1 drugs, of course, when they're approved in second-line lung cancer, eventually penetrated to every single person with non-small cell lung cancer. They were approved at all PDL1 cutoffs in the second line setting. And thus, that is something that has a huge potential to bend a curve because bending a curve is contingent on the number of people with the diagnosis you change. A RET drug will never show up on one of these SEER curves because a RET drug only helps 1% and it's not a, it's not a magical cure. It 
is a modest improvement in median survival. Likely. We don't know because if you'd have to have a control arm to know those things, and God forbid we have control arms. Luckily, perhaps the EMA will get them to do the control arm study. And that's an article we wrote in the Annals of Oncology about cell percatinib and why it needs a randomized control trial. Okay, so that's the first point to make. I'm not convinced at all there's anything different going on in these years. The next couple points to make are points that I um, and Peter Bach ironically made within 30 minutes of each other uh, online. Um, I pointed out that it is not even possible that EGFR and ALK are doing the heavy lifting here. One, because we know from foundation medicine data that these drugs are underused. They're Not everyone is being tested and they're not given as much as they could be given, particularly in those years. Second, even if you maxed out these drugs, they only have a modest improvement in median survival, as we talked about, 20-some to 36 months, modest improvement in survival. And third, the upper bound estimate of these drugs, if you multiply the percent of people with lung cancer by the frequency with which these alterations occur, is not enough to result in a 3% reduction in lung cancer death. Because EGFR mutants only appear about 10% of the time in some studies. And let's be honest. Even though we read studies and people always say they appear 10 to 15% of the time, when you actually practice a lot of medicine in actual real-world settings, uh, you sometimes wonder why that number is so high because it often feels far lower. ALK, 4%, maybe 3%, 2%. Uh, ROS1, much lower percent. And ROS1 is you know not even, even the authors don't have the audacity to think ROS1 is doing any of the driving here. Um, based on those calculations that the benefit, the delta is small, the population is small, and the uptake is a subset of the population, it's not possible that there's a 3% reduction in all lung cancer deaths from these drugs. Now, that was how I approached it in my Twitter thread. And then I think about 30 minutes later, Peter Bach had a thread on this. And I want to give him credit for one thing, which was a very clever thing, which is what I didn't think about doing. But Peter, in addition to looking at the things that I did, like the prevalence of these mutations and the rate with which the testing was performed, and Peter had a link to that, which shows, you know, 40% of people got EGFR and 24% got ALK. I think that even that's probably a little bit optimistic for these years, but, you know, let's take those numbers. Um, you know, Peter made the point that this could not possibly result in a 3% difference in mortality, which is what the authors in the New England Journal claim. But then Peter did what I thought was particularly clever. He looked at the cumulative sales of Tarsiva in that year. And Tarsiva, of course, licensed in that year for pancreas and lung, but probably was never used for pancreas. Peter said, let's assume all of that is for lung. And then he put a rebate on it and he calculated and he basically found that just looking at the money it would be at best 15% of stage four non-small cell lung cancer patients are getting this drug to have that revenue. And that's assuming nobody is getting it for any other purpose. Uh, one of the other purposes somebody could get this for is, of course, pancreas. Another purpose somebody could get this for is, of course, they were still probably a few uh, crazy people in oncology who are giving it in uh, second-line settings in a uh, non-mutation uh, subgroup population. You remember those old studies where we found slivers of benefit when you would just give it agnostically. So there might be some people doing something like that. Oh, and then the other possibility is that some of the sales are actually global sales. So, you know, I think all of these things converge. I mean, Peter's argument where you could look at price, my argument where you look at the frequencies of the mutations and the rates with which doctors were known to test for the mutations, the real-world data that shows modest survival benefits, if any, um, all of them converge to make the claim that in those years, oh, and, then, and then the fourth point, that many of these drugs had had an uptake in the years prior and in the years since, and that there is nothing special about 2013. All of them converge to lead to a conclusion that it is almost not the case that these targeted drugs, EGFR and ALK, 
significantly bent lung cancer mortality statistics in the years the authors of the New England Journal paper purport in those years in question. It is almost not possible that that is the case. The drugs were used a little bit before, they were used after, their frequencies are not large enough to account for the size of the difference. The fact that the authors choose to spline their curve at that is likely their own internal bias. They're doing it based on when they think the drugs are used, not vice versa. Nobody looking at the curve would think to spline it there. Um, so for these reasons, I believe, I mean, I, I have probably even a stronger position um, than I think what, what Peter is articulating, which is that I just don't believe that there's anything fundamentally different going on in those years. I just don't even concede the premise. And even if I were to concede the premise, I certainly don't think that these particular targeted drugs could possibly even result in that difference. Likely, I think what we're seeing is some of the tail effects of continued smoking cessation and maybe some of the modest contribution of pdl one drugs, which actually do have much larger market share and penetration and the potential to bend the survival curve as it has done in melanoma. Why does all this matter? I guess if the editor of the Hemonk section of the New England Journal wasn't Dan Longo, who has an irrational belief in the benefit of targeted drugs um, and has made that his pet project, if it was any other editor, potentially an editor who had some critical thinking, um, this paper wouldn't be approved. And I do think, you know, I, I give credit to Peter because I think that, um, you know, we didn't talk to each other, you know, yet within a very short period of time, we both have analyzed the problem in the exact same way, we reaching the exact same conclusion for slightly different reasons, but with a huge overlap. And I think what that speaks to is that critical appraisal of articles, there is some objectivity there and you can learn it. And more and more people should have reached this conclusion and potentially could reach this conclusion um, if we did a better job of teaching these things. So on that positive note, I'm going to turn to my third topic, which is a citation. So the other day on Twitter, I tweeted, I was just reading a paper and I found an interesting sentence referenced. Then I pulled the reference and read it in full. To my total shock, it was nothing like how it was cited. It had been sensationalized and inaccurately referenced. Has anyone else encountered this? And in fact, I received 161 comments and 41 retreats with comments and many, many people said, yes, they agree. Always check the references was the takeaway message. And I thought, you're right. And I had a couple points. One, I have encountered this many times over the years. Two, on one occasion, I encountered one author who was the first author with a affiliation at a top center. And this person, I checked a few references because I thought it was very provocative sentences. None of them lined up. And then I pulled this author's prior papers and I checked references and I realized this author makes up every reference. Almost every reference did not say what this author claimed. It was an elaborate scam, I think. And what I realized is that I know that this person is destined for a fall because you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And all you need is one person to not be fooled. So this person is, is got a pathology. They don't know how to cite. They're fabricating things. It's like a Stephen Glass pathology. And this person is going to get, this person is going to get taken down hard, but it's not my place to, to, to take down everybody, especially when they're doing work that's published in journals. Nobody reads. So they don't have the, don't have the heart for that. So, I, I, I tweeted this and it got a great response from the academic community. And then I thought to myself, I wish 
they would extend the same thing to Twitter. You see, when people are offended or outraged or deeply moved or hurt by an article, a blog, a podcast, they tweet about it. And a few times I actually take the time to do my own independent assessment. I read the, the, the take on it. I think, oh boy, that's really bad. That's really, really bad. I agree with this person. That person shouldn't have said that or done that or written that or spoken that in the podcast. Then I go listen for 40 minutes on my walk or run or bike, right? Um, I go listen. I read the paper. I read it in full. And, and I, for a moment, put aside what I've been told about the paper and read it just fresh. And I would say much of the time, much of the time, the paper does not say what they claim it says. It says something different. Many times it says something that is more nuanced, harder to pin, that doesn't really fall so clearly in bins. Sometimes it frankly just doesn't say what it says. And sometimes it does say what it says and it's a horrible thing. And I agree with them. That's not so good. And yeah, but I have a few thoughts. These tweets that don't say what people claim they say at times get massive crowd action, mob action, the tyranny of the mob. They all agree that it's bad. And when you pull people aside and start asking them, they admit that they did not read it. They did not read it fully themselves. That is a deep problem. You cannot get strong emotions about something if you do not interrogate the source material yourself. It's okay to shrug and say, yeah, that's probably bad. That's okay, because that's a modest reaction. But if you want to say, this is super, super bad, and I'm really going to be angry about it, you have a moral obligation to read the source material and read it with your own eyes and come to your own conclusion. And if you, at the end of the conclusion, agree that the person who felt wronged or hurt or angered by it is right, you're perfectly entitled to that. But if you did not read it, you're not entitled to that. And if you think the problem in the academy where people cite references is inaccurate, if you think that's the problem, the problem in the Twitter is an order of magnitude worse because you have people who don't even abide by the basic conventions of the academy. It's even worse. So I think this is a huge problem. And it's related to another problem I, I wanted to talk about. In next week's episode, we're going to talk about the HERO trial with Dr. Burns from Northwestern University, a fellow. And if you're a fellow resident medical student and you've read a paper that you feel comfortable presenting in a journal club and you think it's something that I would be interested in, that there's something there worth discussing, email me, please. Because um, Dr. Burns emailed me and uh, sent me this paper and I had skimmed it earlier and I didn't really read it. Now I read it and I was like, oh my God, this is great. Here, this is a great to read. And so we're going to talk about it next week. And I don't want to spoil anything for you. But one of the things I'm very cognizant of, even in this exercise, is that I do not want us to talk about articles that have already done a perfectly fine job of being buried. Every year, we publish probably 4 million scientific articles a year. There's a cumulative 25, 30 million scientific articles. There's a joke that most are only read by the editor and the author and the reviewers. I think that joke is true um, and maybe even overstatement because I'm not sure the reviewers are reading that closely or even the editor and the authors, who knows? So I think there are many, many articles that no one is reading. Every day, there's 
more words generated by people than probably can be read in the lifetime of any one person. And, and the reason I say that is to put this in perspective, there's always going to be some information out there that you don't like. But like whack-a-mole, you can't whack it all. We have to focus our energies on the stuff that's getting the, the biggest signal, the biggest uptake. And so that's why for people who are thinking about emailing me about this, let's pick articles in the top journals that people are that are widely discussed. Let's pick that. And preferably oncology because they might know something about it. Um, but I think that's important. Let's not pick articles that no one's reading just to bash them because I'm not going to really enjoy doing that. So um, similarly, if you're want to take advantage of the Twitter mob and turn them loose on something, let's pick things that actually hurt people, um, that actually have hurt people, or that actually are powerful, influencing events. Let's not pick things no one's reading. And then the other thing I would say about this is, let's be very clear. When you identify something problematic, what do you want to have happen? Sometimes you want to kill the idea. That's what I enjoy. I just want to kill the idea. Sometimes you want to kill the idea and have tangible reforms to make things better for the thing that's being harmed from drug approval to you name it. Whatever the topic is that you feel is being wronged, patients, you want to have tangible improvement. So you want to kill the idea and suggest concrete reforms. That's the goal. Do you want to kill the authors, crush the authors? You notice on this podcast, I crush many papers and ideas. I often don't even mention the author's names. It's irrelevant to me. I have no desire to crush these authors. Crushing these authors, why? It's like it's like picking seven cars out of traffic and throwing them away and the traffic will just be there. The traffic is the phenomenon, not the cars. A few cars, that's not the traffic make. The traffic is made by the system. It's a systemic failure. Similarly, we need to think about that in all of these things we discuss. Related to this topic, I do not aspire to silence the people who disagree with me. They've, we've tried to invite them to the podcast, but many people are a bit nervous to come on this podcast. I don't know why, but they are. They do say they're little, no, they're, they don't say they're nervous, but they do things that suggest to me and people who work with me that they may be a bit nervous and unlikely to come on this podcast. However, I, they, they have plenty of other venues to say their nonsense. Uh, you know, they're all those rag journals that get stuffed in our mailboxes, so they don't need to come on my podcast to put out their ideas. And I certainly, you know, don't have any desire to silence their opinions. I don't want them to be felt, feel like they can't say what they want to say. Let them say it. What my goal is, is so that one, they can say it, but when people hear it, they know it's wrong. And then even more, when you really destroy the idea, when you destroy, crush the idea, the response to the bad idea is no longer anger, it's indifference, because the idea is so destroyed, so crushed, that you don't feel anything, because you know it's so foolish and misguided that no one will ever take it seriously. And that is the goal, to neutralize ideas. And on this podcast, all of the issues that I care about and know something about, which is a Venn diagram, of caring and knowing, that has a very tiny overlap. That's what this podcast is. On those issues, my goal is to persuade the audience to see things my way, to see things that crossover has two types of crossover. There are times you, you need it and you don't get it, that's bad. There are times you need it and you do get it, that's good. There's times you don't need it, don't want it, and you get it, that's bad. And you don't want it, you don't get it, that's good. I want to teach that, 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 that there's this phenomenon. Um, this is 
And once you sort of put that idea out there, it's a very persuasive idea because in fact it's right, but I mean also it has, it, 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 it is a unifying idea for many, many clinical trials. Um, and of course that's discussed at length in Malignant. Um, the purpose of all this is to persuade the audience to adopt my way of looking at clinical trials because why? My way of looking at clinical trials would bring better drugs to market at lower price and improve outcomes for patients a lot more a lot more, and would make the job of being a doctor a lot easier because we'd have more knowledge and certainty about our products instead of this sea of garbage, uncontrolled approvals with toxicity. Um, so my goal is to persuade the audience. The people who disagree with me, who publish many of these horrible studies, they may continue to disagree with me, but they have two disadvantages. One, they're often further along in their career than me. So as long as, knock on wood, I live long enough, I may outlive their legacy. There's some nice research that shows that science actually does need a changing of the guard to change the ideas. So I may, in fact, live long enough to be the victor on some of these issues. Next, I think they've got going against them is that they are fact technically wrong. It's illogical and their arguments don't make sense. Um, and as you explain it to people why that is the case, that human beings are still fundamentally rational and many people will see the right, the light. And what I worry about with the mob is that they're not committed to the same process. They want to destroy the person who had the bad idea, but persons can be destroyed just like cars can be pulled out of traffic, but traffic is still there and bad ideas can be destroyed. But in the process of destroying them, you seed the bad idea to many, many other people who will carry the bad idea. And by that, I mean, don't destroy things that are doing a damn fine job of being ignored anyway. Wait for the bad idea to rear its ugly head in a way that is noticeable and then destroy the idea, neutralize the idea, leave it such that the people who have the bad idea, they're free to say the bad idea all they want, but it'll be greeted with indifference because no one will take the bad idea seriously. This is my philosophy of change and progress. You may have a different philosophy, but I hope the part of the philosophy we can agree on is when we do identify instances of bad ideas we find problematic, we have a intellectual obligation to read that in full with our own eyes before making judgments. And then to take our emotion and try to translate emotion. Obviously, I feel very passionate about some of these lousy drug approvals. But we want to translate that emotion into the action we want, which is in this case, regulatory reform, which I have detailed in a couple of chapters of the book, Malignant, and which I make the podcast to draw attention to those things that I care about, you see. And so I think it's important to, to figure out how you will actually fix the situation. And you can destroy a few people, but you won't solve the problem. And you won't help the people you purport to help. You might make yourself feel a little bit better, but you feeling better is a juvenile emotion that I have no interest in. I want the things fixed and I want the world to be in a more harmonious way so that the goals are actually achieved. And I think we could all remember that a little bit more when we use these god-awful platforms that are truly a double-edged sword because they have great potential to reach people and educate people and get them to think differently, but they also have potential to be misused and perpetuate uh, falsehoods and, and, and lies. So on that positive note, the rabbit hole of the reference is made a bit more clear just to podcast listeners, but I'm going to obscure what I talk about in the tweet because nobody listens to a podcast in depth unless they're actually committed to a nuanced and thoughtful look at 
at an idea. That's the difference between podcast and Twitter. Twitter is the opposite, the antithesis of a podcast. A podcast, you can lay out arguments, and in a podcast, you can build it over years. And when you build it over years, and people listen to many, many episodes, many, many drugs, wait till you hear Hero Trial next week. You listen to that, you're just gonna, you, you build a mindset. And then once you build a mindset, you understand the nuance, and you understand why people feel the way they do. So at least in this case, you'll understand why I feel the way I do about these issues. So on that positive note, we will turn to Brandon Tarlow. We're going back into the PPI world, and it does not look good. Then Elizabeth Eisenhower, the great Elizabeth Eisenhower. This is a podcast for the oncologist oncologist, Resist 1.1, Eisenhower et al. If you are practicing in cancer medicine, you're not going to want to miss this discussion of a long distinguished career in oncology. So on that positive note, we turn to the next segment. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Brandon Tarlow. Dr. Tarlow is a fellow in gastroenterology at Stanford University, and he and I met many years ago when he was a graduating MD-PhD student at OHSU, and I'm going to tell that story about how we met. He went on to do his residency training on the physician-scientist fast-track program at the University of Texas Southwestern, and then he went to Stanford, where he is now a third-year fellow in gastroenterology and just beginning his laboratory time. Dr. Tarlow, it's great to see you. Hey, it's great to see you too. It's, uh, you know, I, I feel like I, I know you because we've followed your podcast, but uh, it's been, I think, about five years. So. It's been about five years since we sat down together. See, I want to tell listeners a little bit about how I first met you. Um, you're one of the people, you're one of a handful of people who I have emailed, I think. I think I instigated the meeting. And that's because I was just in the course of my day-to-day -day life. This has happened to a few people. Um, and interestingly, it's always connected to the BMJ. But there's a few people, a few students particularly. So I'm in the course of my day-to-day -day life. And I read something that just puts such a smile on my face that I'm like, and, and then I see that the author is a student at OHSU. And I was I was just like, I got to meet this person. And actually, that's how I met Rosa on, and that's how I met you. And so I just want to read listeners what it was that really, that really was um, what, what caught my attention and why I, I instantly emailed you or tried to figure out your email. Um, so, you know, just as a way of background, uh, maybe about five, six years ago, uh, Brandon was a... Um, uh, a graduating medical student, um, and I didn't know him. And uh, there's an article that appeared in the BMJ, and it was concerned about cancer drug price. And this is something that obviously is near and dear to my heart. And the article made the claim that, you know, isn't it interesting that if you get somebody in your clinic and they're sort of the average BMI in this country, whatever that may be, and the average body surface area, maybe 1.77, 1.78, something like that, um, and you think about how you dose the cancer medicines, it's often dosed per BSA, per body surface area. And it comes in certain size vials. And what that means is it, based on the average size person who's coming in the clinic, you might have to draw one full vial and like half of the second vial. And so you have residual drug left in that second vial. And this article kind of went through many, many drugs, and it noticed that for sort of average-sized people, um, that there would be some drug left over in that last vial, and that drug would be wasted, it would be thrown away. And the article argued that if you could find a way to kind of collect all that waste and save it, you would have considerable savings. I forget the number, but something on the order of billions of dollars. And, um, and when I read it, I thought that, you know, it's one of those kind of articles that I actually think is a little bit off the mark. Um, because, I mean, my initial thought was that the price of drug is like the price of soda in a movie theater. It doesn't actually cost them that much to fill that giant cup 
the, the world's largest cup with soda. That's not the price. It's because they have the, the monopoly, you know, they have you at, at their, they have you, um, you know, under their thumb. And so anyway, so I was looking at the rapid responses and I saw Br- Brandon, Tar- Brandon Tarlow writes, medical student, OHSU. This is March, 2016. He must've been a fourth year student. He writes, I would have been, yeah. Yeah, you would have been a fourth-year student. So here's what you write. I suspect the cost savings proposed here are grossly overstated due to the simple fact that the cost to manufacture the drugs is essentially unrelated to the cost of the drug. The drug companies are selling their intellectual property and pricing the drugs to provide a certain number of treatments based on what the market will bear. This is a cute paper, but the prices for the treatments would simply rise in the years it would take to establish systems to reduce waste. Waste should be reduced when possible, but this article is hyperbole. No competing interest. So uh, that article, <laughs> that comment put such a smile on my face. This is a cute paper, but it's totally wrong. Um, <laughs> so I guess I want to ask you, you know, now I have you on the record. I've used that in like lectures I've given because I was like, this is a smart student. And so that's why I emailed you. And that's why we met for, I think, coffee one day. Um, but I don't know, um, you know, what made you, um, I don't know, what made you write that rapid response when, many years ago? Boy, you know, I, I, I have to try to think back and put myself where, where I was. Um, I mean, I, I think I know what I was doing at the time. I was trying to figure out if I was going to go into to gastroenterology or oncology. And mm. I actually, both are, I think, very fascinating fields. And I, I've, I, I find sort of the geoncology space fairly interesting and, and I'm interested in biology. I, I think one thing that really bothered me about oncology and, and always always had from family experiences and working at, I worked at Genentech for a while, mm. um, was, you know, the, the cost of, of medications. And and I think what, what I saw that paper as is it wasn't a real solution to the cost of uh, uh, of drugs and it, it was more, you know, sort of a superficial response that was going to have a, a negative, there was going to be a feedback loop that was going to yeah. quickly correct it even yeah. if they could uh, uh, execute that. And so, I mean, I, I, I continue to, to, to think that all of these, uh, you know, uh, drug price issues are, you know, one, one of the more important problems that, that, we, that we, that we have. And, you know, it's, um, can't say GI is certainly not superior to oncology in, not any, anymore. in, terms, in terms of the, <laughs> the, the pricing, ways that, yeah. that practice and, and pricing, but, uh, you know, financial toxicity of the things that we do are, uh, as doctors is always near and dear to my heart. And, um, that's probably where that the letter came from. Yeah, I guess that letter is sort of just a reminder to me. I mean, not only is I do I think that you were you're right exactly, and you put your finger on something that you know many many people miss because that article got just you know tons of publicity and people weren't saying what you were saying. Um, but also, it's just always a continual reminder that you know you were a fourth year student at the time. Granted that you know you're an MD PhD student, so you you spent a few more years in training. Um, but it's just a constant reminder that you know. Um, just because somebody's a student, just because they're, you know, even a pre-med, um, doesn't mean that they can't come to the table with even the most sharp insights. And so I've always sort of admired, um, people who sort of are very early in their career are comfortable kind of just tossing an idea out there. And I think, you know, you put yourself out there when you toss an idea out there. Um, and, uh, but I do encourage people to do that because like, I don't know, I mean, 
because there are people like me out there looking and we do kind of smile when we read things like that. And then we recognize that I'm like, well, this person's going to be, you know, this is a smart person. He's going to have a good career. And, and, you know, you're not the only one I felt that way for. I felt that way for a bunch of people who, um, you know, um, I just read a few of their papers or just like their first things. And I'm like, this person, there's something going on there. I'm going to keep my eye on this person. Sometimes I add them to my, um, you know, PubMed filter so that I get updated when they publish an article <laughs> or something like that. Um, but anyway, so I guess I would encourage trainees when they read articles, especially like on the BMJ where there's a rapid response section to, you know, do what Brandon did and just, uh, just put your two cents out there. Um, because, you know, in your case, I think you were, you just really hit the nail on the head. So thank you. Yeah. Um, anyway, the reason you're here today is that you're hitting another nail on the head. <laughs> uh, but this is probably more of a, a touchy subject. Um, but we're going to get into it a little bit. So, um, you know, People who listen to this podcast know I've talked about this on a couple of occasions. Um, just before you and I uh, spoke, I, I took a deeper dive. Um, uh, you know, I read yet again the paper and the supplement, the the, the analysis that they put out. Um, and here we're going to be talking about a paper um, that is increased risk of COVID among users of proton pump inhibitors, American Journal of Gastroenterology online preprint. And I wonder, I'll just let you sort of take us through you know, why was this, why is this such a sort of um, discussed paper in GI? This is something that every GI doctor I know has been exposed to this idea, this paper. Um, so what is this paper? What do they find? Why is it talked about so much? I think that, well, I, I first heard about the paper when it was sent out to our, our whole division and, mm. and folks saying, hey, take a look at this. We should change our practice, uh, uh, you know, r r right away. I think, you know, proton pump inhibitors are, very effective medications. They're, they're ones that we use all the time in, in gastroenterology and are you know, quite overused as, as, as well, um, uh, in, in a, a pretty, you know, sizable population. I think we've, we've seen th this particular paper w w was, was, um, looking at the proton pump inhibitors in the setting of, uh, self-reported COVID-19 uh, uh, diagnoses and mm -hmm. was, was asking the question of, you know, uh, it, it seemed that, that the, the survey was designed to, to look at this question, actually. I'm not sure you know, what else the authors had in mind when they were, you know, uh, hiring a firm to collect data, but essentially they, they, they hired a firm to collect 53,000 uh, uh, responses um, and data produced by the, the respondents, um, and and uh, reported that the the odds of a self-reported uh, COVID nineteen test were were hot, uh, associated with um, uh, people who were, were self-reporting taking a, a PPI. Mm -hmm. And I guess um, some of the things that struck out at me is that. And you're probably going to talk about this in a little bit, but you know they use sort of a new commercial company that's doing sort of online-based surveys. There may be some. I've seen a couple of people um, document that there's some finan financial remuneration for completing the survey. Um, they offer the survey to 260,000 people who are invited by this company to complete the survey, of which. 48% access the site, which is if you're going after sort of general Americans, getting half of them to access the site, 
That's amazing, actually. Um, 86,000 people completed the survey. And of that 86,000, you know what you're talking about, this 50,000 or so, they had noted some symptoms of abdominal pain or discomfort, um, specifically not that they necessarily were diagnosed with GERD. Of course, that's much less frequent than that, um, than 60% of the 80,000 people filled out the survey. Um, people who had had documented acid reflux or heartburn was about 40,000 or regurgitation, 25,000. And thus, they were subsequently asked about anti-secretory medications, such as the proton pump inhibitor class of medication. Um, so I guess right off the bat, um, this is sort of a company that's in the business of getting sort of just broad data. And I mean, you know, they're, they're getting a fair bit of data. I mean, these are a lot of people filling out the survey. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I mean, clearly they collected a, a lot of data and there's a, a, a lot of respondents, but it, it was... I think that the, the nature seemed to be a, an, an internet-based survey, and uh, I think when I first opened the, the paper, I, I just didn't have a, a good understanding of you, you know how these people uh, immediately struck me is that these don't sound exactly like the patients that I take care of mm. uh, in, in the hospital and or in like in our clinic or in our primary care, and uh, it, with all the layers of sort of filtering recruitment and uh you know the bot possibility of bots out there it it just kind of struck me as is fairly like a preliminary me methodological approach interesting but uh, uh with lots of caveats yeah i think um and maybe it's worth to unpack a little bit these bots you know i think what bots mean is correct me if i'm wrong i'm not a I'm not a nerd. No, I'm not a techie. Um, but I guess I think what bots mean is there are people out there who are savvy with computers who can write script in such a way that, that it mimics to some degree what human beings do. And if you put a carrot out there in the world and the carrot is, if you fill out my survey, we're going to give you a little bit of money. And there are all these people out there who are good at scripting things. They'll think, well, I can make something that will fill out this survey many, 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 many times, and then I will get some money to do that. And so why shouldn't I do that? Because they were dumb enough to put the money out there, so let me just collect my money. Um, in the same way that a farmer grows crops, I mean, that they're taking advantage of a natural resource, the sun is shining. Um, is that a sort of a fair summary of what a bot is? Yeah, I think it, it could be people who are just either mischief makers or yeah. after a small a small carrot and uh, uh, you know have a, a computer program. You know, it's funny in the now now that you live in the, the Bay Area, yeah. uh, my my wife tells me that the uh, at her work uh, that reserving the prime camping sites, they all the all these tech people they, they run little bots, and so they use those to. Uh, reserve the good camping. Oh, camping really? Sites yeah, yeah. In, in, on those in, all those in, lotteries, in, yeah. And there, I think it doesn't take. You don't have to be that sophisticated, uh, given this, a, a base level of computer savvy. It's above mine, but uh, you know, to be able to, uh, you know, navigate through a, a, a website and, uh, um, you know, a very small number of, of of people can can cause an outsized 
influence. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you know, I heard for, you know, as you know, from Oregon, Mount St. Helens, they have the, um, you know, the tickets. You can only go on the days you can get the tickets. And I heard that like people are out there with bots and all this stuff to collect these tickets and that there's a secondary market for the tickets. And, um, you know, my level of computer savviness is just cursing when Zoom doesn't open the way I want it to open. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's my level. So I don't know about all this stuff. Okay, but you guys, you took a close look at this paper and you have a letter that's under submission, but in your letter, you point to like many things that I think are super interesting. And I guess the last thing we're going to come to is the Stanford experience. But let's talk about the first thing we come to, which was, um, you, you know, you thoughtfully looked at the U.S. population and the people who are testing positive for COVID-19 and a bunch of demographic data jumped out at you. Um, so, uh, I guess, um, you know, want, let, take us through some of those things that jumped out at you as potential discrepancies. Sure. Um, so I mean, the first thing was, was the, the, the population, uh, that, that was first of all, they're, they're self-reporting being, being, being positive. And mm. I would just say anecdotally, my experience is I've heard from a lot of people that they had COVID, uh, in, in yeah. March or April. Yeah. Or December of last year. Tested. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, or even, even before <laughs> That's that. What I say. So, so I, I think that was the yeah. first thing I wanted to yeah. look into that in terms of demographics though, the, 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 the patient, the population here is, is, is pretty young. Probably based on when the paper came out, well, I, I think now it's probably reasonable, but um, 81% were married. Uh, the household income issue, uh, namely that I think 63% made over $200,000 seemed uh, an unusual. I think that the authors certainly addressed that in their, in their rebuttal. Even something didn't get a lot of play is that 73% said they were everyday smokers, which mm -hmm. in common America is, is it's a bit very high. unusual. It's a bit high. But it, I think it's, it tends to be somewhere in the 10 to 20% range. And even, and it's particularly low in 30 to, to, to 40 year olds and it being such a Hispanic population and, uh, and, and based in the South, all this number 70% came up again and again in, in the, the population that was self-reporting a test. And so it just kind of, kind of was, was, was a, was a big thing that stuck out. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the, the sheer percentage of people that were positive, I think, um, you know, has been kind of glossed over, but it was about six and a half percent, um, in this data set, um, which, you know, uh, was, um, really, I mean, if you're thinking about a survey that's happening over time and the case rate is going up and at the end of the survey, sort of national rates are, I think it was about 1% of people in the United States had tested positive for COVID among all people in the United States. And they're doing a survey where about six and a half percent of people are testing positive and presumably this is sort of a nationally representative survey. So that appeared to be, you know, a bit high, a bit unusual. Um, and so that, that jumps out as well. Um, and the other, the other notable thing was, um, you know, you write the unusual distribution of these demographic data raised the question of underlying data integrity and raised the broader question about unaudited commercially generated data used to study COVID-19. And then you cite a very interesting paper, which I believe is a surgisphere paper. Uh, <laughs> and that is a, a really just a stellar citation. And so what you mean to say is that, you know, in this modern age of COVID, perhaps we should take with a grain of salt commercially generated data that we cannot really put our fingers on the actual the actual data itself. Um, we're just kind of getting the report of the data. You're smiling. The... 
I mean, I, I, I worry about the integrity and I, 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 in the, the, I think, you know, I think that make sure we get it right is super important. Yeah. And the rate, I've been involved in a few case reports, uh, with my colleagues on who helped write this letter, uh, uh, George, John Carroll and, and John Gubaton. Um, you know, and we carefully went through, uh, some, some charts. So we, I, I was essentially, you know, sort of the, the labor that went through, mm-hmm. you know, 30 charts and we divided up, but it, it's a little bit time consuming, but it, I, I, I think that that's, and I'm not saying that our paper is necessarily, a, you know, pristine, it, yeah, pristine, but, um, the, these, these, uh, the, 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 the rush to get something out with a paid database that's very opaque, uh, I think just we, we know has caused problems in the very recent past. Yeah. So next you write, second, the association, if true, replicates the confounding problems of multiple prior papers on PPI associations and chronic diseases. COVID-19 testing has been limited by severe shortage of tests, resulting in underdiagnosis and testing of select populations. Comorbidities, which are highly correlated with PPI use, could have influenced physician decision to order the test. So why don't you unpack that a little bit? Now you're saying, okay, let's put aside the data questions. Let's say the data are pristine. Um, PPIs is a thorny problem. So tell us about that. So, um, you know, PPIs are, are overprescribed and oftentimes, uh, 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 the patients who have history of, of, of gastric ulcers also have a lot of other, other comorbidities or older and, um, you know, there's, there's a, just a very long series of, of, of literature that, that, you know, that in many cases did reasonable regression analyses um, uh, data, data manipulations to control for things, uh, in, in retrospective studies, uh, you, you know, and they found that the PPIs were associated with, with dementia or CKD. Um, I think the one thing that holds up probably is probably C, C diff diarrhea. Right. But over and over again, the, 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 these putative associations in retrospective studies, um, are later, you know, reversed, and and um, the the issue. I as a GI doc, I have a lot of conversations with people, patients who probably should be on a PPI, especially in, in California, who have this sort of fear, um, and and I I think um, you know, or or uh, they're going to have one of the the side effects that have been you know, just, just discussed in chronic, chronic illness. And so I think the risk of this with, with COVID-19 is, is, is the, is the same. It could be a confounder. Yeah. And then the last, I mean, I think that's very, that's very right. Um, and then the last thing we talk about is, um, the potential bias that it was the COVID that led to the PPI use not the PPI use that led to the COVID. Um, the authors believe that they have tackled that bias because they say in their paper, individuals taking a PPI for less than one month and who were diagnosed with COVID at least two months prior to survey completion were classified as non-users to help reduce the risk of protopathic bias. That's the bias, the, I guess the reverse causality bias. Um, but I think that that might, as you, I mean, you, you are quick to note in your rebuttal that 
I think that might actually be insufficient. And you write, um, third, because approximately one-third of patients with COVID-19 developed GI symptoms prior to presentation or testing, recent PPI use may be the response to new symptoms of COVID-19 and not necessarily vice versa. And so you really got to know which came first, the cart or the horse. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, I don't, and I don't think their method fully corrects for it. So I guess what you're saying here is that imagine somebody's out there, they call up the doc, my tummy is hurting. Of course, they're going to say, take a PPI, they take the PPI. And then, you know, a week or two later, they get a lot sicker. And uh, then they come in and they finally get tested and it's COVID-19. Uh, and it's possible people think the, the PPI, ah, so many P's. And it is yeah. possible people think the PPI predisposed you to COVID-19, <laughs> but it really was the COVID-19 driving the PPI use. What say ye? I, I think they're... Their their explanation of, of filtering it, it possibly corrects corrects for that, but uh, you know I, I I still think that 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 this self reported data that people have uncomfortable stomachs uh, feel unwell take a, a PPI um, or uh, uh, you know, remember that they took it uh, um, or say took it intermittently before and then and then remember that they take it because they they were were, were uh, having an upset stomach from uh, just generally having a viral gastroenteritis uh, you know is, is another possibility I I, I, I have not you know, looked at their their, their survey or, or seen how these are right worded. I haven't seen um, that either but yeah. you know it's it's I think we could, Give them a little bit of charity to say it's possible that that, that they did control for that. But um. let me ask you a couple of questions. If I'm somebody who t- was taking a PPI and I contracted COVID and I ended up intubated in the hospital, I'm probably not going to be able to complete this survey. Let's we'll agree on that, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I couldn't complete the survey. I'm probably not going to complete it. If I took, you know, if I took a PPI and I got COVID and then I ended up on a couple liters of O2, I'm probably not going to complete the survey. So really, they're kind of going after an interesting population. The people who took or didn't take PPI, contracted COVID, have recovered from it, got back in their house, back mm-hmm. in their house, back at home base, and are feeling in the mood for internet surveys. That's, I mean, that's what they're getting. And in that population, the recovered from COVID, feeling in the mood for surveys, you're getting a 6% rate of COVID positivity at a time where the national rate at that last day was 1%, so it got to be lower than that. I mean, I think, and, and, and so that's part of it. And then the other part of it is if you were feeling a little runny nose, a little cough, a little something, and you, you know, you're like, ah, whatever. And then you toughed it out and it got better on its own. You weren't diagnosed with COVID. So that was a huge chunk of people too. Um, but those people are presumably not checking off the box because, you know, it's probably asking you, did you have COVID? Did somebody prove you had COVID? Um, so really, you know, I mean, just passing the gut test of, is it even plausible that like, oh, when the tests were being disproportionately used in the sickest people, to have a group of people, 6% of people who got sick enough to get the test and then recovered from it to go home and take the survey, that's a, I mean, I think I just don't believe that that's possible, but I guess I'm still stuck on the data integrity part. I I am, I am too, and I I think... um... You know, I mean, it's it's still it, it, if you're just testing ability to get infected and not severity and and you know potentially having this this younger unusual population could could look at at, at that. But the the thing they they also don't report is negative tests right. either. So yes, you're, right. you're 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 
you're you're looking this you know at this sort of through the ability to, to essentially to lobby your doctor yes, to get right. a test. I think you have to remember if you're 30 to 39. Yes, as many people here were in yeah. the month of March, April, and May. I would be un- would have been unable to get that. How the hell are you getting a, a test? test? Exactly. How are you getting a test? Yeah, because I, I would have been told according to my my dynamic my risk. Of, yeah, uh, ri- risk or whatever. The, the the testing algorithm changed yeah. all the time, but but pretty much every time uh, that thirty to thirty nine year old person would have been told to let's just not just just go home for fourteen days and 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 don't 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 talk to anybody. Um, so it, it, yeah, I still, that's, that's, um, that, that testing availability bias, uh, yeah, it may, makes it hard for me to understand the, the population. Yeah, that's well put. I mean, even recently I was driving by a COVID testing center where the cars were queued up and, um, you know, it was worse than a Costco gas station. It was bad. It was bad. They're queued up way far. And I thought to myself that, you know, if I were to feel run down either, I would wait, I would be so sick that I required, you know, oxygenation. So then I'd go to the ER or I would just lock my door and stay in my house and, you know, tough it out for a couple of weeks. Um, but what is going to possess me to spend six hours in my car, you know, in the California sun, sweating my, you know, sweating my face off uh, to get a test that's only going to tell me to go back to my house and sit in that room I was going to sit in anyway. You know, I don't even know if it's really logical to do it. So anyway, that just ties into this. But all right, I'm, I've been I've been holding back. I've been suppressing what I thought was the most interesting part of your rebuttal, which is that you all at Stanford, you have data for which um, you have a database for which people were tested for COVID, SARS-CoV-2 RNA, of which a fraction tested positive, and you could test your own analysis. Um, and and you believe that this data is. We we know that this is this is true data. I mean, this is EMR directed data. So let's talk about that. What did you find? What did you you know what what did you realize you had, and what did you do? So we were we were basically on our, our fellows email list. We're sort of debating this this study and what to, to do about it. And my my I'm fortunate to work with with uh, you know, two fellows actually. Uh, John Gubaton is the one that that kind of uh, pulled this up, and he's been. He, he's in the absolute thick of this COVID uh, uh, data set at the hospital. He's been looking at the effects on different populations, like his interest is in inflammatory bowel disease. And so, you, you know, he, he, he basically has that, that data r- r- right there. He's been, uh, he, he has it loaded up in all the, the programs that, that he wants. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, the other fellow, jo- George Cho and Carroll, uh, is just a, a good clinical research whiz and also kind of spearheaded uh, our, our effort to look at the early COVID experience in Northern California. Um, I think we, we, we were looking at the first about 175 patients that, that came through. And so, um, yeah, just uh, John and, and, and George uh, crunched, uh, crunched some numbers and you know, looked at a, a number of different ways to look at the the relationships between people's medications and and the odds of a of a of a positive COVID test, mm-hmm. and um, uh, so we're we're able to to to, to draw upon about uh, twenty nine hundred mm-hmm. uh, patients who 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 had uh, had positive um, tests, and mm-hmm. that was only about three mm-hmm. percent of uh, all the patients. So it kind of makes kind of makes makes sense, and mm-hmm. then. 
uh, look at the interaction uh, between that and report and PPI appearing in the medical record associated with their with their chart either at any time or um, you know started six months uh, prior to uh, to their, their, their test. And, and can I just um, make one point here that, I mean, what you're saying is that among people tested in the database for the virus, there was a 3% positivity. The other paper is saying among all people in America, there's a 6% positivity, you know? Um, so what you're saying is that you have half the positivity rate in people who are being tested. And uh, the other is looking at a bigger denominator, um, you know, so the other must be having like, a, you know, something. I mean, we don't know the number. They're not telling you how many people are getting tested. But I guess your paper puts in perspective that their number, I believe, is just not plausible. I mean, because you're finding what's really yours is actually quite consistent because for the three percent of people that tested positive, there might have been it might be half of one percent of all Americans. You know, we, that's the real denominator. Um, you know, your I mean, and yours is, of course, you actually have test results. I mean, this is real data. So um, this is this is sort of fits with the national trends and everything. Yeah. And that's the and Northern California, although the rates were higher earlier, right. uh, it's uh, a, bit been lower, a yeah. little bit lower. Um, and and we've, we've been pretty fortunate, actually, I think. You know, to have really incredible uh, uh, laboratory and, and bio, biotech support to be able to get a lot of tests. So it's, I guess it's, it's plausible we could have a little bit lower mm-hmm. uh, 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 test rate. But the bottom line is these are this is this is real real, real laboratory data. Yeah. 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 P- data. yeah. COVID. Okay. And so, what did you find when you looked to see about um, you know whether or not documented PPI use was linked with positive results? Yeah. So we actually just without doing it, and we were, you know, it's it's laborious to go through the the, the charts to confirm, but just looking at at medical records, the 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 odds of patient um, if, of patients who who tested positive, the odds that they were uh, on a PPI were actually actually it was actually lower for those who tested positive than mm. those who tested negative, which actually kind of surprised surprised us um and it was the the odds of um SARS-CoV-2 with PPI was was somewhere between 0.4 and uh, uh 0.6 um and no, kind of no matter how we looked at it it looked to be the same and the the H2 blocker uh, uh data at least crudely looked to have a, a similar similar pattern mm-hmm. um we don't feel that we have enough data and we have no intent of claiming there's a causal protective role or right. or, or anything it, it just looking at the data you know, crudely um really argues against uh these having an increased odds of uh you know contributing to uh, associating with a positive covid test I think that that is, you know, quite provocative. I mean, the difference, of course, I mean, you're finding the opposite association. I'm not inclined, you know, I'm inclined to think it's a non, um, you know, it's not a causal thing, but it's, it certainly is not consistent with a, you know, two to three to four fold increased risk, um, you know, as, as those authors were claiming. Um, you know, all in all, I guess it's sort of a challenging question. It's one of these, you get a new situation and of course there's going to be just massive interest in knowing whether or not. PPIs or ACE inhibitors mm-hmm. or hydrochlorothiazide or SSRIs or, you know, every medicines that are commonly prescribed if they're linked to the outcome. And then you toss into that, there are, you know, 
hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of different data sets. There's Sint, there's the Stanford retrospective data set, that's yours. There's, you know, EMR data sets all over the place. There's so many different data sets. And then there's hundreds and hundreds of investigators probing it. Some topics will get probed more than others because the idea that acid, you know, this is just a common idea that acid is protective for, you know, infections and that you suppress it, then yeah. the infection will strike. Um, uh, that, you know, that's true for lots of infections. So there are going to be a lot of people probing that question. Um, you know, the the I guess the... The, the the barometer is right for a um a storm of sort of false results. And I guess the nice thing about your paper is you you point to the different levels at which this paper could be problematic. One, the underlying data could be inaccurate um or false. Um two, even if it were true, um there could be some other sort of just classic epidemiology problems here. Three, in your own uh just sort of back of the envelope analysis of this problem with your data set where at least you can attest that they actually did have SARS CoV two. Uh, that's for damn sure. Uh, you find no suggestion of harm, and if anything, sort of a protective effect. That's probably not the case, but at least it's not consistent with harm. So that's the, sort of the three-part strategy that you would use to argue against this paper. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And I, I think our, our characterizing our analysis back of the envelope is is is, is the way we want it to describe it. Yeah. But the thing, the apps. I would also point out that. That there's been high quality analyses about ACE, ACEs and ARBs. Yes. And it's, you know, PPIs were, had this inverse relationship. I, I think that would have popped out and, and, uh, you know, really come to light in those other, uh, uh data sets, which have been from, from my, at least my, my personal understanding and reading, um, you know, pretty robust, uh, uh thorough studies yeah like the one by Sergio Sphere. no just kidding just kidding. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not that one but i guess um the and, and let me, are by, yeah is the reason yours is a back of the envelope because to do the multivariate model you're gonna have to ha by hand scrape the emr for all those covariates so is that why you didn't do the multivariate yeah we'd have to scrape it and then yeah, i think we we do it right we'd have to uh to, to select some controls yeah. and 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 do like a, a propensity adjustment. I actually don't do those things my, myself. Oh, I see. But, yeah. Uh, uh, that, that I think um, those may be forthcoming from 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 uh, other folks in our group. Okay. Well, you know, all in all, it's an interesting story. I mean. There, there, there wasn't a GI doctor I didn't talk to that hadn't heard this. Um, I don't know. You know, you've listened to this podcast. I think people have heard me complain. I mean, what I think is the answer in these situations is when, I don't know, if 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 one person thought the data were not didn't were not accurate, you know, that's that one person's problem. But when many many people look at it and they're like, this doesn't sound right, and you know. It's an electric, it's an internet self-reporting survey, and it's a company that people don't know much about. And, you know, there's these problems with bots. When all those problems kind of line up, that, and, then, and then people raise that question, the way these authors chose to handle it was, they were like, well, let's just assume all the people over $200,000, let's just put that data away and look at the analysis here. Is the relationship exists? Yes. Okay, let's put away all the um, Latinx under, you know, such and such an age, and let's look at it. It still exists. Okay, yes. So they did all these sensitivity analyses, but I guess I, for me, that's, that's not satisfactory for the simple reason that, you know, people, people are saying that there's a rot in the data. I keep calling it a rot, but it is. And when you have a rot in a wooden floor, you don't just change the, the, the final level of floorboards. You really have to dig until you get to the bottom of that 
rot. And you don't know how deep the rot goes. And if you just redo the floor and the rot's all the way to the subfloor, you're going to have to redo it again in a couple of years. Um, similarly, when people allege that there might be some misrepresentation, why do you think the people are lying just about the income? Why do you think they're just lying about their uh, ethnicity or age? They could also be lying about whether or not they have COVID in the first place. They could be lying about any variable. And so there is no variable that separates liars from non-liars. If you knew what variable separated liars from not liars, you would have already done that in your first pass. There is no variable that teases out who's a liar. And so when people are saying they're liars in this data set, that's the claim. The only way is I think you pick 5%, 10% and you phone them up, you go to their house, you knock on their door and you check it. And if you if your ten percent is all hundred percent right, then you're like, well, that's that's pretty good. But if their ten percent is full of lies, then you're like, okay, well, we got a problem, and we got to pull this. Um, that's yeah. my view. I, you know, I don't I don't have a problem with people doing a survey and and, and saying, hey, let's let's make a, a preliminary hypothesis. Mm -hmm. But I, I I do think that this is you know figure if this is a true story, it should be you know the unpublished figure of their their future uh, medical record uh, a, a dive or you know ha has some sort of uh, you know, you know, secondary supporting factor i think that the reason we're we're, we're talking about this this paper and it's not uh, you, you know a, a poster at a, a conference that people just walk by really quickly is that it's been, you know, fully, you know, it's been published in one of our uh, Premier, journal in yeah. the field and uh, is being, you know, supported um, uh, very strongly and, 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 you know, was accompanied by a, sort of some practice. They, they worded it, you know, in terms yeah. of practice advice for gastroenterologists yeah. and, and, and patients. And I, I think it, you know, the audience for this type of paper really should have been very focused to, uh, you know, may maybe folks like m myself and, and my colleagues, John Gubitan, uh, uh who would use this as, as a place to leap off yeah, and, a pilot and do data. their own, yeah, right. do their own study. And that's, and then it would have a benefit and, and, and a role. Well, yeah, you know, now that the things are, you know, wh where they are, it's the, it, the doubling down and it, it's, I wish the folks would sort of just be disinterested and, and say, what what is most likely to be the, the, right. the, the truth? Yeah, that's, I, that's what I come to. I mean, yeah, obviously, top journal, big name authors, you know, good track record from these authors prior to this work. Um uh, uh, lots of discussion on every GI forum, uh, sort of something that they said they're going to put out some like how discussion guide for how to talk to patients about this. And it's like, oh my God, no, don't talk to patients about it. Verify it first, verify it first. Then we can have a little conversation. Um, I don't know. PPIs is a tough one for me because I don't know. My bias obviously is that I don't know how, how to put this in a polite way, but I guess um, we have this strange inversion at some point that, you know, um, like PPIs are 100% proven to work in very in certain specific situations, peptic ulcer disease, um, mm -hmm. eradication of H. pylori, uh, you know, and I have to deal, deal with a lot of that because I treat a lot of, um, you know, uh, gastric marginal zone lymphoma. Um, so, you know, I'm dealing with that a lot and that it has a, you know, known response rate. Um, so proven indications, but then, you know, it's obviously a blockbuster class of medications and it became this thing where, you know, people take a PPI every day for five, six years. And I am not aware, and maybe I'm just missed it, but I'm pretty, I, I'm not aware that there's ever a randomized trial that randomized people to PPI, no PPI. And six years later show PPI users still have, you know, subjective benefit from being a PPI six years later. 
I don't think that studies exist. Um, and so what I, what I mean to say is that, you know, I don't know, do people really benefit from the long term, like year after year administration of these drugs? And I think there's answers a question mark. Um, and, you know, you're shaking your head. I think a lot of people are like, oh, God, these are massively overprescribed. And when you have a drug that's massively overprescribed, one thing to say is that, you know, if I got somebody in my clinic who's been on it for six years, I might say, you know, let's try to taper you down and let's try to come off of it and see how you do. Um, and but I don't think people do that. The path of least resistance is just to keep it on. Um, and 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 in the face of that kind of culture, papers that show PPIs are linked to, you know, subtrochanteric fractures or pneumonia or, um, you know, uh, I don't know, um, proptosis. I mean, the PPIs have been linked to everything. And it's kind of like a, sort of like missing the point. Like if, if your goal is you don't want people to take this for like 20 years, you don't need to do all this, buddy. You can just say, like, let's just try to come off these things and see what happened. We don't have proof that they work this late. Well, what are your thoughts on that issue? I mean, you're a GI doctor. I'm not. I'm, I'm talking a little bit outside of my, I mean, it's been a while since I've done it. So what do you, what do you think? How do you, do you counsel people? Well, to come I, I, yeah. Yeah. I should know the data better than I, that I do, but you know, the PPIs can be quite effective for dyspepsia, which is extraordinarily common. But the, the goal is to use them for the uh, limited amount of time, whether it's a trial of, of six weeks and then stop, or, um, I believe the guidance is to, to, to reevaluate, uh, every, if people, do benefit and can't come off after six weeks to reevaluate every every you know, six months and try yeah. to get folks folks off. Um, you know, I think some of that's probably more financial toxicity yeah. Um, yeah. Than, than than anything. But um, I mean, that in in that respect, you know, you know, as a GI doc, sometimes when folks come in with dyspepsia, the question is, do you scope them, which can be a several thousand dollar right uh, ordeal? So scope meaning an uh, upper endoscopy uh, versus you know try a medicine that you know costs less than a dollar a dollar a day, and and um, you know call me in six weeks, and some people you know never never call back, and and that's uh, they go home satisfied. So yeah, uh, uh, they, they're they're definitely you know effective medications um uh but yeah clearly clearly way over, over yeah. prescribed as well well brendan it's a pleasure to talk with you pleasure to see you it's a superb letter i hope to see it in print someday let the powers that be know that um and i guess um you know you're two for two now in my books two superb <laughs> two superb letters since the years i've followed you uh so I look forward to uh, following your work in years to come. So uh, any last thoughts for the listeners? No, it's just uh, I, it's a pleasure to see you. And this is not really my, my, my field uh, in, in terms of clinical research, but it's, uh, you know, I think it's an important issue. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. My, my mother-in-law really enjoyed reading Malignant, by the oh, way. Oh, really? Oh, that's terrific. My, my mother <laughs> that's great news oh well um you know i i take every reader i can get they're not that many these days so <laughs> yeah. well thanks it's great so, to see you yeah take care all right i'm back in plenary session joined via zoom by dr elizabeth eisenhower Dr. Eisenhower is professor of medicine in Kingston, Ontario, Canada at Queen's University, and she is a legendary force in cancer medicine. Um, Dr. Eisenhower, I, I would describe you as, you know, one of the most thoughtful people in oncology for the last 20, 30 years, um, as well as a clinical trialist 
as well as a former division chief. Um, you've really had a lot of hats uh, that you've worn in your career. And it's really an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I think the listeners are going to love to hear sort of your trajectory through academic medicine and academic oncology. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, you're very welcome. And I look forward to our conversation. I hope we have some moments of excitement along the way. <laughs> I think we will. We'll have some things that, that spark a, a vigorous discussion. So I think listeners might um, hear your name and it might ring familiar because probably and I don't know if this is true, I should have fact-checked it, but I would suspect um, your most cited article, of course, is is the Resist 1.1 Guidelines, of which you were the first author on, which is obviously cited in almost every single cancer clinical study going forward. Um, is that, in fact, your most cited article to date? Yes, it is. I was on both Resist papers, the original one mm -hmm. and the 1.1, mm -hmm. the revision. Um, yes, those two are the most cited papers. Um, and as we like to say, resistance is futile. So, <laughs> so um, people talk about it. They argue about it. Some, I think, I think the pendulum has swung a bit from the early days when people didn't like the idea of there being a new consistent guideline out there that, um, that attempted to remove some of the variability in how people were describing tumor response. Mm -hmm. But I think they um, uh, came around, and now, of course, there are all sorts of variations of resist out there popping up, right, some for, official and some less so. Right, uh, for immune-related adverse events, for lymphomas, for pet avid disease, you know, different sort of uh, flavors of resist 1.1. Exactly, exactly. But I guess, and I would yeah. Say, I would say the surprising thing about that guideline, it's an interesting story how it came about, and this is a storytelling podcast, so we might as well uh, tell that. Yeah. It started on the island of Corfu. <laughs> um, there was an early clinical trials group meeting, which was the sort of phase one, two group of the European Organization for Research mm -hmm. and Treatment of Cancer. And I usually attended those meetings because in my role in the Canadian Cancer Trials Group, being responsible for phase one and two trials in Canada, the, the community of practice, if you will, in early drug development in the 80s and 90s was pretty small internationally. So we tended to congregate at one or two international meetings a year. And standing around, oh, some idyllic setting in the Greek island, uh, we were talking about how frustrating it was that depending on whose response criteria you looked at, you might come up with a different conclusion about the outcome of an individual patient. And we thought, well, we should just do something about that. Mm -hmm. So um, an effort between the NCI in the U.S. and the Canadian group and EORTC got underway. And, um, and about three years, two years, three years after that meeting, the first RESIST guideline was published, whose main contribution to the world, I guess, was to dispense with all the multiplication and summing that right. had been the, the bi-dimensional measurements response mm -hmm. criteria prior to that. Mm -hmm. I suppose the surprising thing about the resist criteria um, has been how it went from being a way to describe what happened in phase two trials when you categorically assigned people an outcome to being the root of, of how randomized trials were being described and about how benefits were being attributed based mm -hmm. on endpoints that were really never intended for that place. Um, so, so that has always been a bit of in, interesting to 
to see evolve that way. And as you know, I have feelings about whether that should have happened that way, but that's substance for later in our discussion, probably. I see. But that's, you know, so telling is that, you know, you set out to standardize a series of different response criteria. I guess probably the leading one at that time was the WHO, the bi-dimensional, some of the product of bi-dimensional measurements. Um, and in an effort to standardize something, um, the inadvertent uh, sort of consequence of that standardization is that many people um, came to equate Resist 1.1 with a measure of clinical benefit to the person and not a description of what happened to tumor size. I think that's true. And I think we see that not just in this example in medicine, but elsewhere. Mm -hmm. When we create definitions to categorize things, uh, especially things that might occur in a continuum, suddenly there's meanings attributed to being in various categories that weren't intended. And I think even of blood pressure, <laughs> suddenly there's a disease above a certain number and no disease below it. Right. And in uh, resist, it became beneficial to have shrinkage of uh, a certain proportion, but not beneficial if you were one percentage higher, which was never the intent, of course. That's one fascinating. I mean, you know, and and I think you're right that across medicine, these things take on a life of their own. And maybe even beyond medicine, maybe it's something that people just gravitate to. Once you can measure something, we inherently like to judge ourselves against those yardsticks. Um, but I want to go back to the beginning of your career. So, you know, you gave recently gave um, sort of a, a really splendid lecture that people raved about online. They ra Oh, did they rave about it? But they did not upload a video, which was really salt in my wounds because, you know, I, I really wanted to see this lecture. But this was a lecture about your time, um, your career, I think, in oncology. But thankfully, you have given me the slides and I read through the slides and I thought, you know, the only thing that might be even better than the lecture is is going to be being able to have you kind of take us through your journey um, in oncology and, and talk us through it. And I guess I guess I want to back up to the beginning. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll jump in on your first sort of faculty position, which um, it looks like to me from the slides was in the in the early 1980s, 1982, at Queen's University, where the Canadian group decided to start what is now sort of the really well-known Canadian Clinical Trials Group, um, but back then was a little bit smaller and really um, sort of changed, I think, the the axis of of cancer research, which was really sort of U.S.-centric primary to that and, and really NCI-heavy. Um, and, and Canada sort of made a bold leap forward in, in the early 1980s. Is that fair to say? Um, it is true. I started in 1982 with that job. And I would say the Canadian Cancer Trials Group, which at that time had a different name, it was called the NCIC Clinical Trials Group, um, it had grown organically over the years prior to that. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, not because some granting agency thought there should be a clinical trials group to do cancer trials, but because investigators themselves were coalescing around some important questions they felt, one in Hodgkin lymphoma and one in melanoma. And the fact that people were starting to work together kind of created the underpinning for a formal group to be formed, and Joe Pater became the leader of the group. And there was... Oncology was a very young specialty at that time. It wasn't even a Royal College um, program at that time. So everybody who practiced oncology came from a hematology background. Mm. In, in the, about 1981, 
Um, some of the investigators who've been training in the U.S. and got a chance to do some new drug studies there really wanted to study some of these investigational agents that were now coming and um, look to be interesting, um, and most of them coming, I should say, from the U.S. NCI Drug Discovery Program. Mm -hmm. But there was no formal way through which we could access them. So we created a new drug program in Canada as part of this clinical trials group. And it was my role to be the director of that program and to go to the USNCI, find out what drugs were coming up through the pipeline, put in letters of intent to get them, and to try to build a, um, a community of um, expertise and experience in that area in cancer clinical trials in Canada, so early phase trials. The interesting thing was, I was a hematologist by training, but I didn't really have any drug development background. I, mm. I don't think very many people did at that time. Mm -hmm. You kind of learned as you went along. Um, and as I said in my slides, my qualifications were somewhat limited. Um, I, I, I played in the local orchestra, so I knew something about teamwork. Uh -huh. I'd been, when I've been very ill a few years before, I was enrolled as a patient on a clinical trial, um, but I had very little um, formal knowledge about uh, clinical trials and epidemiology, etc. at that time. So it was uh, a beginning of naivete, I would say, but it um, it was an exciting time to be involved in, in cancer research because there was so much starting to happen. Yes. And I guess like so many people, I mean, I, I, I do view it as to some degree it's an apprenticeship um, that's that... You know, so people, some people sometimes ask me, what's the textbook I can read that will teach me everything I need to know about clinical trials? And, you know, I just don't believe that there is such a textbook uh, because so much of it is learning from doing, from talking to people, from seeing others do, um, from reading clinical trials, from reading protocols, from going to protocol reviews, um, from putting people on a protocol and seeing what happens when you have situations that the protocol doesn't tell you what to do. I mean, it is to some degree an apprenticeship. Um, and I, you know, I got to see a fair bit of it at the NCI. Um, do you feel the same way that, and, and in your case, it might've been a new apprenticeship. It didn't really exist before. I think that's fair. I think there is, well, every trial, at least in my view, should start with the question, what is the thing you are trying to address? Right. And in those days, there were so many questions and there was infrastructure and support from funding agencies to address those questions uh, without the need at that time to um, look to pharma for support. And pharma, to be frank, at that time, was really not interested in cancer. Mm. They saw cancer as too high risk and unlikely to result in a product that they could sell. And by the way, you didn't take it for years. You either took it and got better or took it and got worse and stopped. And so most of the drug development was done through academic institutions, be it drug discovery in the lab and also drug development in clinical trials. So it was a kind of exciting time. And you're right, the, um, the urge to write the perfect protocol yeah. uh, is upon everyone who set pen to paper or fingers to a keyboard to yeah. create a protocol. But no protocol can actually account for all the things that might happen in the course of a clinical trial. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I do a lot of uh, teaching of, uh, young investigators in some of these clinical res cancer research methods courses. Yeah. And that's one of the things 
that I try to convey to people that you have to be prepared for unexpected things to happen and to know how to handle them, either through creating um, some guidance within the protocol that allows you wiggle room or by going back to the basics, putting a hold on things and um, reconfiguring your your work and your question. Yeah, and I think that... um... You know, what you said at the outset, that it's so important to know clearly in your mind what the question is. Nowhere is that more evident when you have situations that the protocol doesn't answer. And when you try to answer that and think of how do I resolve this dilemma? What, how should we code this event or how should we solve this? Only by thinking about what the purpose of the study is and what's best for the patient in front of you, of course, that's first and foremost, but also what's the purpose of the study leads you to the right answer. And if you don't have a clear sense of what the purpose of the study is, um, it's so easy to, I think, resolve that in a bad way, in in a way that doesn't actually further the aims of the study. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's really important to have a very clear question that sets out the objectives, that defines the endpoints, and how you will conduct the work. It is uh, also the case that as the years have gone on, people do try to think of a, a, a single study as being the one that will answer every possible question about a disease or a drug. And that, I think, leads people down pathways that make trials way too complicated and way too, uh, way too uh, complex as well to undertake. So having clarity in your mind about what the question is, and the question should never be, I just want to use that drug. Right. Um, <laughs> right. What, what is it that you don't know that you need a clinical trial to answer? Right. Now tell me a little bit about what is IND22 or KKO1, one of your... Oh, yes. Yes. So, so early on, we started, uh, we had a nomenclature system for every trial. We were the Investigational New Drug Program, IND, and each trial in sequence had a number. So IND1 and IND2. Um, IND22 was a trial of a drug called deoxycopromycin. And that was a drug that had been studied in the lab of a hematologist in Winnipeg, a, a clinician scientist called James Johnson. And he found that it really seemed to um, have beneficial effects in his cultures of uh, hairy cell leukemic cells. I see. And at, at that time, the big new breakthrough for hairy cell leukemia was actually interferon. I see. Which if anybody's, I yes. think you probably prescribe it. It's not a very nice drug no, to take. No, unpleasant. And it produced a very low response rate yeah. um, in a handful of patients that nonetheless got a New England Journal publication. Mm. And we thought, well, let's try it. There wasn't really anything that seemed to be magical. So IND22 was a phase two trial of deoxycopromycin. And... KK1, KK was the postal code for the Kingston area, and number one was the first patient that I happened to enroll as a hematologist. And this um, patient received uh, three weekly doses of deoxycopromycin IV, and in that period of time, his spleen, which had been down into his pelvis, Mm -hmm. actually shrank so it was no longer palpable. It was the most exciting, probably the exciting moment as a clinician who was trying a new cancer drug for the first time in, in a patient mm-hmm. um, to, to experience because it, it kind of underscored why we were in the business of doing this work, that not always but occasionally we would find something that really 
helped an individual patient. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, it was the first patient in a in a trial which overall had a, an extremely high overall and complete response rate. And um, that particular drug went on to be compared to interferon in a big um, intergroup study in North America. I think Mike Graver from Ohio State was the chair of that trial and was dramatically um, superior to interferon in terms of um, durable, complete response and, and survival. So KK1 was my first patient on that trial, and it was a pretty dramatic and gratifying experience to have a patient receiving an investigational agent that really um, benefited almost overnight. Now, I guess my question is, I mean, how did you know to test it in hairy cell? Was it an all-comers study, or was it being de- developed in hairy cell, which is, of course, an extremely rare malignancy? So, so it was a completely academic study. So this drug was not being sponsored by a pharmaceutical mm-hmm. firm. It was an academic study driven by um, lab work done in hairy cell leukemia. I see. By this um, clinician scientist in Winnipeg. I see. And in those days, um, getting a supply of drug and formulating it for human use um, in nineteen early nineteen eighties, the the hoops you jumped through were somewhat uh, smaller and less, um, less challenging numerous, yeah. than they would be today if you yeah. decided to try to get a drug that you would be giving to humans, really just from from a lab. I see. And eventually, of course, the DCF was uh, supplanted by cladribine. Correct. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure they ever went head to head against yeah, each other. I don't. I was trying to um, think. Yeah. I think there was probably more muscle behind the cladribine than there was the DCF. I see. And maybe it had some convenience associated with it. Mm-hmm. In the 1980s, it was the era of cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs. Correct. Did you find yourself caught up in one thing that wasn't mentioned in your discussion is the role of autologous stem cell transplants and, and high dose chemotherapy. Um, the idea you did cite, of course, uh, Goldie Coldman hypothesis, this idea that, you know, cures were just outside of our grasp for many diseases. Right. Yeah. Right. No, well, there was certainly uh, Bill Herniak, who was a, um, an oncologist from, um, Hamilton, Ontario, and Les Levine, an oncologist from London, did a, an analysis of dose intensity and outcomes in ovarian cancer that was very highly cited at the time, mm-hmm. suggesting that with high enough doses, if they could be made tolerable, you could flick a switch from being um, regimens that would maybe prolong survival to maybe even cure people. And that was really the beginning of the era that started with dose-intense treatments, dose-intense treatments supported by autologous stem cell or growth factor support. And um, as we know, at the end of all of that, um, we, we peddled back tremendously. Now, we did... I remember uh, an anecdote around that time when there was a lot of excitement in breast cancer, and I don't know, you were, you were probably still a toddler at that point <laughs> in your life, but there was, I think in the U.S., even a court case around access yes, to a, a, a high who dose, yeah, who didn't get yeah, access, yeah. high dose treatment, and I thought, isn't it bizarre that courts are deciding when the evidence of medicine is sufficiently robust that patients patients insurance should pay for it. Mm-hmm. 
I was at a meeting again in Europe and I met a, a trainee from Spain who had been looking at um, the outcome of a series of patients who would have been eligible for high-dose chemotherapy, um, autologous stem cell-supported mm -hmm. breast cancer treatment. Who, who met those stringent uh, inclusion criteria. Yes. yes. But who, for one reason or these patients, for one reason or another, weren't eligible. Because yes. all of the comparisons, at least initially, were a cohort treated this way compared with historical comparisons. So she took a cohort of patients who would have been eligible, but didn't get it. Yes. And she drew sort of superimposable survival curves over uh, with that cohort of patients over what was being observed with the autologous stem cell transplant, really making the point that until there's a randomized trial, this looks just like really super-duper patient selection. And, of course, um, she was right, later proved to be right. Right. But, but in oncology and in many places in medicine, there are prevailing uh, moments of excitement about, we finally found it, aren't there? I mean, autologous stem cell transplant and high-dose treatment was one such era. I remember uh, IL-2 yes. uh, when Dr. Rosenberg, Rosenberg yeah. uh, published his first work in IL-2, and I sat beside someone from the NCI at a meeting once listening to this uh, presentation on renal cell and he said to me, listen carefully, Elizabeth, this is the beginning of the end of cancer. Wow. This, this desire to, to not just find the cure, but to believe you are seeing it right now before you really have more than a handful of patients is one that is, I've seen over and over and over again. And that's just one example. But at a, at a certain point, you do, I won't say you get skeptical, or maybe you get skeptical in a healthy way, mm -hmm. to know that if you pick the right patients, you can find phenomenal results in a handful, and you really need to see larger numbers of people more representative of the population you would be treating and randomized results to know the place of some of these newer uh, approaches. Like a like a thirsty person in a desert, the mirage of cure is always there in oncologists' eyes. Well, and you know, oncologists, I think, are inherently optimistic people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They want they want the best for their patients. They want to see the fruits of their work and their research make a difference to people's lives, um, and those are good motivators. But I think. That has to be balanced a little bit by saying, well, what has history taught us? Right. What has history taught us about how often we said this is it? And then further research um, dials back the enthusiasm to the more appropriate level. Mm. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the 1990s. So in the 1990s, of course, it was the the era of the microtubule inhibitors of oh, taxanes. Oh, yes, the taxanes. Yes, yes. the taxanes. Yeah, well, that was a pretty exciting time, really, because by the end of the 80s, so you have to remember, the blockbuster drug in the, in the 70s were probably the platinums, mm -hmm. um, and the uh, cisplatin first, and then carboplatin afterwards. And then there was a bit of a lull. We had all this great basic science and, and biology coming out of the lab saying, we think we are understanding more and more what drives malignancy, but there was a bit of a gap between that moment 
and when we actually had drugs targeting some of those underlying abnormalities. Mm-hmm. And then taxanes appeared. And again, this was an NCIUS-developed drug. It had been, Taxol was an extract of the Western U, and it had been gathered as part of the um, program of collecting natural substances way back in the 60s, and it kind of been shelved until Susan Horowitz showed it had a different mechanism of action than other antitubule agents such as the Binkas. And it went into clinical trial, and uh, very early on um, in phase one and two, responses were being seen in breast and ovarian cancer. But mm-hmm. a big problem was it wasn't very soluble. It had to be prepared in cremophore, and patients were getting quite scary hypersensitivity reactions. To the cremophore. And the, mm-hmm. the approach to the hypersensitivity reaction was twofold. Uh, extend the duration of infusion over 24 hours or longer. And also to add uh, steroid premedication and right. other antihistamine type drugs. And that seemed to manage the problem. And of course, um, after it showed activity in, in phase two in breast cancer, uh, Bristol Myers um, became the uh, company that succeeded in, in gaining the access to the data and the opportunity to develop it. And we had not studied it in Canada and mm-hmm. thought, well, maybe there's some questions to ask about how best to give this drug. Right. Because at that time, a 24-hour infusion, at least in our hands, meant admission to hospital right. and um, monitoring the heart and monitoring the patient. And so we did a we did a, um, a bifactorially designed randomized trial in ovarian cancer, just looking at two infusion durations. Um, um, and two doses to try to see if, if there was anything that was preferred. And that trial was our first foray into not just uh, my first foray, not just into ovarian cancer randomized trials, but also into um, international collaboration because we did it with uh, a number of European centers. And that trial um, identified that a shorter infusion and the higher dose was probably the preferred approach. Mm, yes, yeah, so three-hour infusion and 175 milligrams per meter squared. Yeah, 175 yeah. and three hours. And that was a change in practice, yeah. and um, it led to a bit of commotion because, of course, um, this natural product had no patent associated with it. So that um, short infusion and higher dose became... Um, an observation that ended up securing a, a, a method of administration patent for the company for, for a period of time. I see. But more importantly, it, it established this collaboration over the Atlantic between Europeans and the Canadians, and we immediately decided to do a frontline ovarian trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and Martin Picard from EORTC was the chair of that study. Yes. And that showed... Um, and this, pl- this was it, platinum plus taxane versus... What was the control? Platinum cyclo. Platinum cyclophosphamide. Ah, I see. I see. So platinum cyclophosphamide. That had been the standard of care I up see. to that point. I see. And, and it, it really showed a dramatic improvement, not just in progression-free survival, no, of but, in months, overall, but yeah. an overall survival of, of about uh, 12 months. And that really sealed the deal for uh, frontline paclitaxel, as it was then known, um, in, um, in ovarian cancer. And, and to this day, frontline paclitaxel is, and platinum are the, is are the, the backbone. Drugs, yeah. Is the backbone, yeah. And you make an but interesting a- point about the fact that 
even though they were patients on the control arm that crossed over to the active agent paclitaxel, the trial nonetheless found an all-cause mortality benefit. Yeah, about 50% of the patients on the control arm received paclitaxel on uh, progression. Yeah. And yet, despite that, there was a 12-month overall survival gain. And I am sure that even if 100% had received it, there would have still been a survival gain. Just mathematically, it seems hard to believe that it would have been erased. Yes. And I think... Yeah, go on. No, no. So so that really was a hugely interesting observation. Um, and um, that got our feet wet with with taxane type compounds, and and we then did five or six phase two trials with um, docetaxel or or taxotere, and um, it was that was a pretty exciting uh, time as well because suddenly there was a sense that we're finding something new, yeah, and it is completely different mechanism of action. It is active in some diseases which for which we've struggled to find new drugs for a while. So it was an exciting time. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of the things that are interesting from that story is, you know, you're talking about an active drug, active in a place where not a lot of things are active or at least as active. Next is the life prolonging drug. And next is it's so different than the modern day where excuses for failing to show survival benefits uh, run long. In this yes. case, despite crossover, there was a survival benefit. In the modern era, lack of survival benefit would be attributed to crossover because the drug would be yes. not as potent. Yeah. Well, and some of the some of the later developments um, with angiogenesis inhibitors, most notably, where they try to explain away a failure to see a PFS advantage turn into a survival advantage because 30% of patients cross, cross over. It just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense. Right. And I think that, as you well know, I've felt fairly strongly that there's so many things that can affect measurement of progression in advanced disease. Yes. And such trivial differences in tumor size absolute trivial differences can declare a progression or not, that it shouldn't be surprising at all that having achieved progression, yes or no, at different points in times, doesn't necessarily translate into any kind of overall net survival benefit a year or two later. But in this case, in this case, a four-month improvement in PFS in the taxol story, uh, ovary frontline story, translated into a nearly 12-month improvement in overall survival. Proportionately, the hazard ratios were similar, Mm -hmm. and that was despite the crossover. And there's been a lot of discussion about why that was so. Could it have been that having been exposed to paclitaxel, it made some change, inherent change, to the biology of the disease, Mm -hmm. such that its growth was different after exposure? I don't know, because treatment ended after six cycles. Right. right? And I think, yeah. It was fun to to think about, but it was the nice kind of problem to have. <laughs> the nice kind of problem to have is to explain why why it was so impressive. Yes, but that was a defining trial and, of course, defined the standard of care for disease to this day. Despite the fact that, of course, soon everyone will be on a maintenance PARP inhibitor, don't you worry, because the PFS benefit <laughs> is so terrific. Um, I want to talk about your 1998 paper. Um, you were really ahead of the curve here. 
This is that special article, the phase one and phase two trials of novel anti-cancer agents, endpoints, efficacy, and existentialism. What I thought was so interesting was 1998, we were still a year or so away, I think, from the phase one results of imatinib and CML. And you postulated that going forward, we would be thinking less about dosing to MTD, more about target inhibition. We will be, you postulated that drugs that target uh, oncogenic cellular processes and genomic cellular processes may not lead to the same amount of tumor regression. And thus we may need to be more cognizant of changes in tumor growth kinetics such as can be found in in terms of prolonged progression-free survival. Um, And you also postulated that they may be more toxic than you think, that they're not going to be a walk in the park. Um, Seven years later, I think your predictions were all vindicated. How did you see that coming? I mean, I get... Well, you know, I I, I see that slightly differently than you. I think there was such enthusiasm about targeted drugs then. And you have to remember, this was the era when once you defined that a target in a cell was going to be important in driving malignant behavior, you yeah. had to find a very, 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 very specific agent to tackle that. Yes. So the idea of dirty kinases was a bad thing. I see. Um, so, so you needed to target it exactly. There was this discussion of turning cancer into a chronic disease, Yes. of giving patients treatments that would control but not cure their disease, and that if that were going to be the paradigm we were moving to, we couldn't and shouldn't be treating patients with doses of drugs that would be causing toxicity that limited our ability to deliver it continuously. Uh Furthermore, it seemed plausible, it was plausible that targeting... um, let's say, receptors or, or um, growth pathways, signaling pathways, might not cause the cells to die, but just sit there. So expecting tumor regression right. might be a bit optimistic. So this was sort of theoretical, and, and, and it did have implications about trial design, because if you're not going to see tumors shrink, and you're expecting patients to just have their disease be static, Well, we all know that happens anyway for some patients. So it implies that instead of doing non-randomized trials where you look for a proportion of patients that have tumor shrinkage, you would need to be screening these drugs with randomized designs from the get-go. Right, I see. Because you couldn't rely on, you know, 60% of patients showed no growth at two months as being meaningful because we can all pick the patients who will do that. Right to some degree. So that's what we, that was not just me thinking that, I think that was generally how people in early cancer drug development were thinking. And I think some of that turned out to be true, but a lot of it was wrong. A lot of it was wrong. Because I think we learned that if we underdose with these drugs, we sometimes don't see benefit. And okay. A lot of the explanation, let's say, for the Jafitin and lung cancer uh, uh, phase three results being at a dose that may not have been as toxic as the erlotinib equivalent dose um, may have explained away why survival benefits weren't seen. I think we also learned that amazingly these drugs did did cause tumors to shrink. And in fact, there was a paper I did with Rob Elmeragi, who was a fellow with me at the time, that 
on the basis of the data we had at that point, seemed to show a pretty nice relationship between the likelihood of the drug really being successful in phase three, being related to its ability to produce uh, response rates in phase one and two. And the higher the response rates, I mean, even something like trastuzumab has about a 30% single agent response rate frontline in HER2 positive breast cancer. Um, you saw something there that translated into benefits in phase three. So while some of what I was saying then was true and was based on the evidence from, I guess, first principles and how we thought these drugs would work, what actually turned out was that these drugs were toxic, you could underdose them, and they did cause tumor regression, and maybe that mattered. Yeah, I guess I would say, I maybe I misspoke a little bit, because I agree with all that, what you just added. I mean, I guess I would say that my view of targeted drugs are the effective targeted drugs actually do cause tumor regression. And, you know, we've published papers on drugs that lack single agent activity are probably not even worth their salt, and I think probably not even worth pursuing. Um, the next thing is the drugs are toxic, and, 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 and you have to push the dose. I mean, good example is sunitinib in kidney cancer. When you start to slip below 37.5 milligrams um, dosing, uh, you are really wonder what you're going to do to tumor growth kinetics. But I guess the one difference I do see is that, you know, when it comes to cytotoxic drugs, um, and maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken here, but I think that they're all active. I mean, they were judged by activity. Um, but we do have some few drugs, targeted drugs, serafinib and liver cancer, doesn't cause a lot of regressions, doesn't have a lot of response, but does appear to have um, some growth kinetics because there appears to be a survival benefit in, in papers. Um, but I think you're right that, you know, of course, it's not a terrific drug. It's a modest or marginal drug. Um, but the good targeted drugs do generate responses. Um, they can be underdosed. So I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. But I guess, but I mean, the thing that people didn't listen to you was, you know, you made a call for earlier randomization. And if anything, we've gone the other direction towards deferring randomization and avoiding it altogether. Um, that's been sort of a big movement in drug development. Um, one of the things that you talk about, about targeted therapies um, that I thought was really good in your lecture that people forget about is that, you know, there continues to be this idea that we're just cocktails away from cure. And you gave some examples, you know, the MET inhibitor plus erlotinib. The MET inhibitor was uh, uh, onertuzumab, um, uh, where mortality was actually worsened by adding a drug. And we had many sort of combination targeted therapy trials that didn't go too far because toxicity was a lot worse than people thought. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Why do we not see so many combination targeted drugs the way we once saw combination cytotoxics? Yeah. Well, that was one of those dreams that people had that you somehow figure out what are the five to ten most important anomalies, molecular genetic anomalies, acquired anomalies within a tumor, and you'd pull from the shelf the targeted drugs that affected those and put them together in a cocktail and be able to suddenly transform the outcome for mm -hmm. patients. and. I always thought that was a bit naive, right. um, especially since many of the anomalies tend to work within similar pathways. So you really would be adding toxicity. Um, and, and you have to remember that the drugs, dark, targeted drugs target normal variants of the same molecule that they're trying to, 
attack in the cancer cell by and large. There are some drugs that are specifically designed in theory towards the mutated variant, but most of them are, um, are directed towards targets that are expressed in normal tissues as well as malignant ones. So that as you start to pile on things that affect normal cell signaling, it's not surprising that you get unhappy outcomes in terms of toxicity. And we, I used to say we can actually absolutely guarantee we will see an enhanced spectrum of toxicities putting drugs together, but we cannot in, by any means guarantee we will see an improvement in therapeutic index until you actually do the experiment. Mm. But I also have this theory, I mean, one, I didn't talk about this in the, in the slides I showed you, but at one point I did a bit of a forensic archaeological dig, if you will, into why the promise of targeted therapy was by and large a bit disappointing. Yeah. I mean, by and large a bit disappointing. The excitement and the hope and the multiple meetings and the that really let spawned this huge growth of biotech and pharma suddenly interested in cancer, all competing with each other with variants of the same drugs. And yet, when people bring up examples of how it's been transformative, they usually say the same three or four names Yes. in the same three or four diseases. Yes. So what went wrong? What, what went wrong? And I think it's important to have that kind of discussion about things such as targeted drugs and angiogenesis inhibitors. But I think one of the problems with the targeted drugs are the need to achieve such high inhibition of the target in the malignancy to actually kill the tumor that you surpass the tolerable dose in normal tissues. Yeah. And I, and I, um, looked particularly at PI3 kinase and AKT inhibitors, yeah. which all sort of came into a rush in the clinic probably 10 or so years ago. And when you actually looked at the percent target inhibition at the maximally tolerated dose in the, in the phase one trials where they tried to measure within tumor cells or normal cells how much inhibition of the pathway they were seeing, it was usually around 70%, maybe in one or two examples, 80% inhibition of the pathway. And if you looked at a drug like an aromatase inhibitor, the amount of inhibition of estrogen production that drug produces is upwards of 98, 99%. Right, it's po highly potent. And my yeah. guess is if you inhibited, if you gave doses of aromatase inhibitors so that you were only inhibiting 60 to 70%. It wouldn't do much at all. You probably wouldn't see much activity. So the normal tissue counterpart of that target is what has limited a lot, I think, of what we've been able to achieve, despite the science being brilliant and um, the, the uh, excitement being there. That's very thought. That's you know, a very interesting question, and I guess that's a question that, as a policy person, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about. It's above my pay grade. I save it for the scientists, but it makes me think of a few things. One, I recently watched a Charlie Rose interview, and this was '99 or 2000. It was 20 years ago, and it had Varmus and Davida and Brian Drucker, who then was a young man, um, and and. And it almost made me cringe um, when I watched the video today because they were just so um, enthusiastic that just as with CML, we would soon see many cancers 
topple. And I wonder what fueled their enthusiasm and, and what they got, you know, as you say, what, what was it they got wrong? And I guess I wonder, I mean, here are just some thoughts and, you know, you can correct me because you're going to know better than me. I mean, one thought is that um, many cancers are not as addicted to single pathways as we might think. That there is redundancy and there may be multiple oncogenic pathways at play. And in CML, of course, you know, the phenotype and the genomic aberration go like glove and hand so tightly wedded. But for complex tumors, genomic aberrations, driver mutations, and the phenotype of the tumor, uh, they're all over the place, you know. So it's hard to believe there's a single pathway doing the heavy lifting. With prostate and, oh, and, and, uh, and breast cancer, those are really sort of hormonally driven, you know, cell lines um, that, uh, that inhibition of hormone strategies is, you know, remarkably beneficial. Uh, but that might not be the case for colon cancer. Um, and then maybe the other part of kind of what they didn't see was that in many cases, the difference between the aberrant between cancer and us is less than we thought. It's 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 behaving very similarly to us, and that's what makes it very hard to drug uh, successfully without poisoning ourselves in the process. I wonder how you think of that. Yeah, well, I would agree with that. I mean, that's sort of, in a nutshell, I guess, what George Sledge said at one of his oh, smart and dumb cancer. Even at ASCO, he's talking about smart and stupid yeah. tumors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, the smart ones are the ones that are as complex and diverse as humanity itself. <laughs> right. And the stupid ones uh, bumble along with one or two abnormalities that you can easily target. But unfortunately, it's sort of hard to know which category you're in until you find the tool, i.e. Right. the drugs, to do the testing. Um, and a lot of what people were generalizing from, I think, I think it's interesting because you trained in hematology, I trained in hematology, and... I kind of remember CML as being, yes, it's a malignancy, but it's actually a pre-malignancy for the real thing, which yeah. is the blast crisis. Sure. Okay. So, so treating CML is different than treating the blast crisis of um, CML. It's, it's a stupider tumor at that point. Um, and a lot of the other things that we cite, the rare tumors that are driven by single uh, mutated pathways, like just... Um, and even that is an oversimplification, of course, but those are, um, those are not the majority of carcinogenesis created tumors of the, um, of the, um, of the GI tract or the lungs and the, uh, aeropharynx, the pharynx and so on. So, I don't know, the, 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 the tumors that, claim more lives tend to be way more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and of course, it, by virtue of being a hematologic cancer, it can be easily accessed and easily measured repeatedly. It's likely found perhaps at a at an earlier um, part of its malignant arc um, than solid tumors. And, and getting the drug to the cell in some ways is a lot easier than some of these tumors where the stroma is yes. uh, impenetrable. And I mean, all of this is the wisdom of hindsight. Right. There was a lot of excitement and enthusiasm but we didn't know. And I think the point was we had to evaluate and we did. But I think if you do fail, it's as important to understand why as to just say we're going to move on to the next thing. Mm, and I, I think see. that's a lesson um, we could all learn a little bit from, that failure is actually a step towards success and teasing apart why a hypothesis was wrong, as opposed to just saying the test was wrong and the hypothesis is right, which happens an awful lot. Um, understanding why your hypothesis might have been wrong 
helps you learn to do things differently or better. So I wonder how you you take your you know long experience in clinical trials and 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 think about the present day. How do you assess the challenges we face today? Where are the problems? Where are the opportunities? What frustrates you the most and what actually gives you the most optimism? Ooh, that's a tough one. So something I find frustrating is I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story. And you'll understand why I'm saying this in a minute. When my children were little, I have two daughters, we enrolled them in soccer in the summertime. And it was fun to watch these four and five-year-olds trying to control a ball and get it into the goal. And you'd see the goalkeeper at one end hanging from the bars and swinging if there was no action at their end of the field. Mm -hmm. But by and large, those children were like a swarm of bees around the ball, and they followed it up and down the hill. And as they got older, they learned to play positions, and, and it became much a much different and more exciting game in many ways. But I sometimes think we in cancer research are very much like those five-year-old soccer players where everyone is surrounding and following the same ball. Mm -hmm. And we're not really playing positions and saying, what are all the things that we should be asking yeah. of a disease that's complex and challenging? And pharma has helped drive this. As I said, um, the, the beginning of the, of the targeted drug era was when pharma became really interested in finding new drugs because they had the med chem, they had the wherewithal to actually develop things that might be um, targeting specific kinases, and that was completely transformative to the mm -hmm. field. But now that everybody knows what the target du jour is, there will be simultaneous and competitive and super fast development of parallel clinical research plans across the planet. And if they are wrong, then we amplify failure. So that amplification of failure is such a huge waste mm -hmm. of resource and time and effort. And I don't really know how to dial that back because what you'd really like to see is the proof of concept that targeting something or that a new class or new mechanism of drug has some early signs of benefit. You'd like to know that that was happening in the clinic before suddenly there were 20 or more um, similar drugs also in development. But right now it's that race to the finish line, the lowering of the bar, the consumption of huge amounts of time and resource. Mm -hmm. And if it fails, then you've amplified the resource lost you increase the prices of everything that comes afterwards mm -hmm. because the costs of failure are absorbed into the, the cost of the next success. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think your new book says it really well. I don't know how you dial that back, though, because unless regulators start doing things like saying, well, until we have a proof of concept that, uh, you know, targeting the ginger ale receptor right. is going to be a benefit in patients, we're not going to approve 25 or 30 right. um, uh, phase two trials in bladder cancer. Um, we need to see that it's not because, frankly, treating people to no good end, which could be predicted, will sometimes happen, is 
is a harm to them and a harm to the work that we're all trying to do together. Hmm. It sounds hmm. like, you know, it's, it, I mean, I, I don't know if I have the answer to your question. I mean, I have the answer to the, the problem, but I think to articulate the problem another way, it sounds like what is really kind of keeping you up, what really kind of is on the forefront of your mind is agenda, um, the clinical trials agenda. Once upon a time, it was relatively contained. You could kind of wrap your wrap your arms around what the NCI is doing, what Canada's doing, what Europe's doing, what we're doing together. Now the agenda is vast. It's many, many, many companies, big and small. It's duplicative. It's redundant. For some diseases, it outstrips the supply of patients. You know, there, I think there are more checkpoint inhibitor studies for melanoma than there are people who present with metastatic melanoma. You know, um, yeah. and, and yeah, but it's 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 the commodification, if that's yeah. a good word. Yeah. The com- modification of clinical research it's um it's as eisenhower your president who is a relative by the way oh really (laughs) once he coined the term the the uh, military industrial complex right and i think actually there's a bit of a pharmaceutical industrial complex at play the need to be first the need to be moving the need to be gaining gaining and the commodity is that approval, and the approval comes on the backs of a lot of failure. And there's no one kind of being thoughtfully in charge of this because everyone's racing to get their hands on the new drugs and new treatments. Now, I would say the the group, the the organizations which can help, but which are also have their hands tied are the truly academic cooperative groups. I mean, cancer is really unusual in um, in the fact that I'm not sure that any other therapeutic era, area has this coming together of clinicians in a formal fashion, in right. an ongoing longitudinal fashion, right. to, ag- to address important problems around the clinical care of patients with a condition like right. they do in um, cancer cooperative groups and pretty well every continent has academic cooperative groups funded by um, government or or in our case in canada funded largely by charity and the problem for those groups is that the funding that they are being given to support their work relative to the current day costs of doing clinical research which has been largely driven upwards by regulatory changes around mm-hmm. the world, there's a gap there that mandates that there be a high proportion of the agenda for those cooperative groups to come with industry support and right. industry dollars. So we aren't liberating the brains of clinicians who might have great questions about how to manage common conditions that need to be addressed and could be addressed through these mechanisms we aren't liberating them because we don't provide the funding and the infrastructure to do the, the clinical trials that could address those issues. Yeah, that's that's a really a notable yeah. exception. I think is the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's been blown away by how uh, how the um, COVID nineteen pandemic right. has been addressed rapidly and with uh, definitive answers to some common questions about the value of. Uh, some new and some old drugs in the management of severe COVID-19. Right. And that is because 
years ago, a portion of the NHS budget, which was devoted to research, was consolidated to create this National Institute for Health Research, NIHR, I think Mm -hmm. it is, but basically creates clinical research infrastructure across the entirety of the NHS. And that is the infrastructure there ready and waiting for questions such as what uh, came up with COVID-19. And it's also there to support uh, cancer trials. No, that's a really good answer. I mean, it sounds like um, you would be the biggest supporter of adequate societal budgets to do truly independent academic clinical trials, not at the beck and call of the industry. And in fact, the best scenario is you don't even need them to collaborate. You have enough funds, you could do it whether or not they want to participate or not, in which case you have true autonomy over the study design. Well, I I think... I don't mean to. I don't mean to say that industry doesn't have anything to contribute. Of course, mm-hmm. they do. Right. They have, they have exciting drugs. But we don't need twenty-five versions of the same trial failing before we come to a conclusion that that's not the right direction to go. And I also think that industry's portfolio will, by definition, be the portfolio that they think will get them to the finish line they right. want as fast as possible. Right. It's all the other questions that that you could do with the drugs that they have that aren't in that kind of line of sight of that um, FDA approval that the academic groups can can do. And um, it's it's a complicated world we live in, as you know. Doing those trials are never as easy as it might seem. But having that stable infrastructure for groups such as uh, clinical trials groups really means that they're ready to take on questions as they come up. And don't forget that some of the important questions about how to manage diseases that we all take advantage of have nothing to do with the drugs we give. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's how we how we treat them with uh, localized therapies or, or other approaches that have all come from academic cooperative trials. Now, I wanted to ask you, one question about your your experiences, your career. Um, I guess I would say that um, you know I recently looked at the statistics of um, you know who's becoming a hematologist oncologist, and um, there's some there's some good news, which is that among trainees, I think we have achieved um, a nice uh, balance of men and women. It's a gender balanced uh, specialty in in modern medicine, at least among trainees. Among the leaders in the field, I think there's a huge gender imbalance. And during the years in which you were starting out your career, um, there was a tremendous gender imbalance. Um, it was a heavily male-dominated field. And I guess I'm wondering how you felt um, in your career, if you felt headwinds, uh, if you felt supported, if you felt that that was a challenge um, that you had to overcome, um, how did how did it... How was it for you um, in, in, back in the 80s and in the 1990s? Great question. Um, I have to say, I, don't, I must have had really great mentors. I have to say, I've never, I've never felt oppressed or put down or not given opportunities because I was female. I was the first female member of the, faculty, the Department of Medicine at our university. I, but even that, I think I had blinkers on. I wasn't really paying attention to that. Mm-hmm. I kind of just did what I thought was fun and kind of got on with things. 
Um, I was the first woman who asked for a maternity leave in my residency training uh-huh. program, and the poor program director just was so embarrassed. He didn't know what to do, and he he hummed and hawed, and we decided I'd take three months off without pay and then go back to work, and that would be it. But um, So it was an interesting time, but I never felt I was struggling. And I think part of that was because I always was kind of saying what I was thinking. I felt I could ask questions of people who knew more than me and were were able to support me. But I also think I was just fortunate in the setting in which I was I chose to work that um, gender just didn't seem to be a big deal to the people who mentored me, or if it was, they hit it if they hit it well. Mm. So I feel fortunate in that respect. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I think that that's um, that's important. I mean, obviously, I think um, I think people appreciate mentors um, who, um, you know, treat people with respect and appreciate the opinions of trainees and 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 help people move forward in their careers. Um, but one of the things you said that that struck me was um, you said you just kept having fun. Um, you view it that way, that, you know, your career in oncology is a series of things that you did that interested you, excited you, you found fun, and you found engaging. Um, is is that a fair characterization of the, the trials you ran and the projects you took on? Um, yes, I think so. There was a point in time. So I did the work in clinical trials for 30 years, as you know. Yeah. And at that point, I was getting a little bit weary, not that all the questions had been answered, but that... There were some problems that um, the ongoing issues of trying to be compliant with uh, regulatory authorities, consent forms getting longer and longer, contracts going on for pages. There were parts of that work that I found were were wearing me down a bit. And I knew I needed a change. And it was at that point the dean of our medical school took me out, I think, three times for lunch before I weakened enough to say I would throw my name in the hat to be head of oncology at uh, Queen's. Uh And that was a really good decision because suddenly I learned so many things that I'd been unaware of around health systems and some of the challenges people delivering care faced that I'd been cloistered from as I was doing protocols and going to clinic, but not having to really make decisions about how do we actually uh, make the health system a better system? Right. How do we address some of the challenges that we and others face with increasing demand, increasing costs, um, and resources that weren't infinite? So that was a really good challenge for me. Um, helping to build and recruit some new members to the department was a lot of fun teaching. Uh, I did a lot of um, time with the residents. I had a brown bag lunch with all the trainees once a month to just talk about stuff that mattered that wasn't in the curriculum. That was fun. But I have to say the other thing that happened is that I got interested in things other than the treatment paradigm. Mm. So all my life I've been chasing treatment and I think I put something like this in one of the slides you saw but I went to the um, UICC World Cancer Congress in Montreal yeah. in, I think, 2012, which was just about the time I was changing the job. And Chris Wilde, 
who was, um, uh, Chris Wilde was there and gave a talk and he said something that really resonated, which was, we will never be able to treat our way out of the cancer problem. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's true. And up until that point, I kind of knew that theoretically, but I thought, well, that's not my lane, as they like to say. Uh -huh. I'm a, I'm a doctor. I treat right. patients. Right. I might think about, but then I thought, well, what if more oncologists said it was their lane? Right. What if more oncologists got really interested in aspects of um, how do we how do we prevent cancer? How do we actually promote the changes that need to happen through policy, through all sorts of and behavior change that will reduce cancer incidence? And because my daughter was going into palliative care, we I became interested in that too. So I said. I guess it was fun. I guess that's one way of putting it. It was fun doing clinical trials, clinical research through this in incredible era. But then it became fun in a different way to be thinking like a, a neophyte around cancer prevention, around palliative care, around health systems. And that kind of energized the last few years of my work. I think that's a fascinating perspective. And I wonder if, you know, more of us in oncology need to think more early on about, you know, what is the goal of an oncologist? Of course, it's to do sort of the best job we can for the people who trust us, our patients, of course. But our second goal, I think, is to reduce the burden of cancer, the cancer problem. And too often, we think of it through the narrow lens of what we do, which is giving drugs and giving treatments. But you're absolutely right that if you really cared about that cancer problem, you know, the global endgame on tobacco is one thing that you cited, but I think that, you know, is a, is a true thing. There are environmental carcinogens, environmental exposures, things we can do in lifestyle to reduce the rates of developing cancer in the first place, um, better ways to assess what screening tests do and how much they offer and if some are worth it and if some have limitations that we haven't really fully captured. I think all of that kind of falls within the umbrella of things that an oncologist should think about. I'm wondering... Go ahead. Yeah. I suppose it's not just thinking about it, but it means something. If someone who's at the rock face of treatment is standing up and saying, we need to do better with our tobacco control policy, it's not saying that we shouldn't keep finding treatments for people who get lung cancer, but it means something if someone who's seen that suffering says, we need to prevent this. Mm. Yes, that's well put. I'm wondering if you might close with, um, you know, what is the advice you give trainees? Uh, somebody comes to you right now and they are a first year hematology oncology fellow. Um, they, they, they tell you, you know, maybe they're really blunt and say, I don't know exactly what I want to do in hematology oncology. I could be a trialist. I could do, could do some policy work like Chris Booth. I could, you know, what, what should I do? What, what, what should I, how should I find my path? Um, I could practice. I could stay in academics. How would you advise this person? How, how do they know what path is right for them? Well, that's a tough one. And a lot of people have those kind of discussions because they think that there was a formula. Yeah that I followed yeah. to do what I did. Yeah. And actually, it was kind of great opportunities that I didn't turn down, maybe other ones that I should have taken but didn't, but it was never planned. What was planned was to go into medicine. And after that, to go into hematology, partly because I just loved the logic of hematology, right. that there was a lab part and, and another part. And the mentors I had that 
we're doing clinical trials and we're so excited about it. I thought, I kind of like that. So I, I suppose if I had that conversation with someone, I would ask them what experiences they'd had in their training that they thought were the most exciting or illuminating. Mm. Was there anyone that they sort of thought they wanted to be like? Had they had a chance, if they're thinking about research, of going in and working with um, a researcher or going to one of these um, courses where they do clinical research or doing an elective in a place that they were interested in? Because in the end, the path you follow, because as you know, medicine isn't opening a single door. It's opening hundreds or thousands right. of possible doors. Right. It's actually peeking behind those doors and finding out what are the rooms you want to stay in and play in. And so um, that's the kind of conversation I would have with people. We'd talk about all sorts of things. I'd get them chatting about, well, what are some of the most challenging cases and what did you learn? Right. Um, you know, what parts of doing hematology, if you had a chance to do an extra rotation, would you want to do an extra rotation on or oncology? Because often people have the answers in them and they just haven't formulated the answer to their own question by reflection. Mm, I think that's a great answer. Well, Dr. Eisenhower, this has been a real pleasure um, to sort of see, I guess, just some glimpses of what your long and distinguished career in academic oncology has been like. Um, I think, um, you know, I wish we could, you know, package your wisdom and, 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 just, and just give it to every oncology fellow. Um, but if I were to sort of make an observation um, about what I think um, sets you apart for certain, and, and, and I think people um, who you worked along with, the best of your colleagues, I guess, also have this trait, which is, um, you know, I think you're, you're a really curious person and, and, and whatever situation you're put in, um, when you see patients, when you do research, um, you're asking a bunch of questions that curious people like to ask. And, and I encourage that people start to, to try to emulate that a little bit more because sometimes, you know, the greatest projects we do, um, you know, the most influential papers we write. I mean, I didn't mention the paper with you and Chris Booth on progression-free survival, um, simply measurable or clinically meaningful. I mean, these are all sort of born out of curiosity or, or things we think about on the side of our, of our day jobs. And I think in this modern sort of ecosystem of cancer, it's so easy for trainees to feel like, you know, I got to work on the next abstract. I got to do the next thing, the next thing, these checklists of sort of career development checklists. But sometimes it's worth it to reflect a little bit and ask yourself, what are you really curious about? Um, I sort of, I hear that from you across all the sorts of projects you talked about was sort of, they were really sort of born out of a genuine curiosity. And I would encourage people to to follow their passions more than the next box to check off. I would agree with that. I think a really important part about being a physician is being able to understand what you don't know mm -hmm. and not being afraid to say that mm -hmm. because knowing what you don't know helps you understand where you need to go or what you need to ask or what research you might want to do. Um, knowledge is not an absolute. It is an evolution. And, and like life itself, it's about growth and evolution and learning. Um, and I... I think I've done that most of my life. No one ever told me to, but it just was how I was wired. Mm. 
but the lack of certainty in in a way is what opens doors. That's well put. Well, Dr. Eisenhower, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you on Plenary Session, and it's a treat to finally get you on the podcast. So thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for inviting me, Benai. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klausner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.